welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 160th episode, our returning guest is Jonathan Fowler. You first heard Jonathan Fowler on episodes 2, 10, 20, 21, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 43, 48, 51, 56, 64, 74, 83, 92, 102, 103, 104, 105, 106, 107, 108, 109, 111, 114, 115, 116, 119, 126, 127, 133, 137, 140, 146, 147, 149, 153, 156, and episode 82, also featuring fellow regular guest Ash Burgess of the podcast. Jonathan graduated with a BA in history from Indiana University in 2006. He is an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over 10 years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation hopefully talk pretty one day. And now on to the show. Now it's coming through. So. Okay. Clear, clearing oh. out the pipes. Of, clearing out the pipes of the internet. Oh. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, it's been a been clearing out the pipes of my nose here the past week. Oh man, how you feeling? No, trying to get better because I got to go back to work tomorrow, but it's been like almost a week now. Mm. Ugh, I I was sick last Friday, and then I was just basically incapacitated at home for three days and went back to work on Monday on the on the mend. But by the end of you know a sixteen-hour day or something. I was starting to sneeze a lot again, and then boom, right back into it for my three days off. Can't ever enjoy a holiday here. <laughs> so, but yeah, anyways, it's 2020 now. Yeah, you're <laughs> the finally made it. You're the mad dog. <laughs> yeah, the white rat in Korea. Oh, really? Yeah. What does that, does that have any significance? Like, what does that mean? Yeah, we call Donald Trump the white rat. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. No, I don't know what the significance of it is, really. Uh, yeah. Apparently, it has both negative and positive connotations. Mm. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. So how, how have things been going there? I mean, uh, overall. Oh, pretty good. Uh, we stayed home with the family over Christmas and uh, New Year's and stuff, so it didn't do too awful much. So it's been uh, been pretty weird over here weather-wise. It was like 50 degrees one day, and then it was like hailing the next. So you know, global warming's not real though. So <laughs> that's yeah. that's good news. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it dropped down to sub-zero here. It was minus eight degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius. Uh, recently, a few days ago, so that's been fun while I've been sick. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, today it was a little bit, a little bit warmer, but we'll see how it goes. We really haven't had much snow yet recently. We've had like it snowed a little bit on the first day on yesterday, mm. I think, but it was didn't stick to the ground or anything. It was just kind of in the air. I see. Mm. All right, so so we're looking at 
we're looking at the November debate in yeah. January. <laughs> we'll get to December eventually, folks. Don't worry. <laughs> Watch out for that in February, guys. <laughs> no, yeah. we won't take that long this time. We'll get it. We'll get it together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll try to get on that one next. Uh, all right. Well, let's see. I've I, I took some notes and everything, of course, as as is my thing that I usually do. Um, so this was the November MSNBC Washington Post debate, Democratic debate in Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. on November 20th, 2019, hosted by Rachel Maddow, Andrea Mitchell from MSNBC, and I guess Ashley Parker and Kristen Welker from uh, WAPO, mm-hmm. the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. AKA the failing Washington Post. I mean the Jeff Bezos Washington Post. Yes. <laughs> One and the same. <laughs> I don't know why they even let a failing newspaper host a debate. There could be a law <laughs> against it or something. Someone should do something. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. This is like a, you know, they don't have the money for this. Okay. <laughs> Exactly. All right, so we had the <laughs> we had the debate, and this is, thank God, this was the last debate that had a full roster of ten members on the stage, I believe. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Was it was it ten? Am I thinking? Let me think. One, I think two, it was three, ten. Yeah. Six, seven, eight, nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, I think ten is about. I think that's what it was. Was ten. December was seven, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, and I, and honestly, I haven't even watched the December debate yet. Because, I mean, I've seen highlights and stuff everywhere, but I try to keep the November one as fresh in my mind as possible. Yeah, so, exactly. Again, and I, I I don't know how you can say who wins or loses a debate unless there's unless there's a direct confrontation that leads to drops in the polls. So yeah, I can't really judge winners or losers here. And. At this point, we're also just reaching a point in in the coverage of these things where we've already seen them say their lines about five or ten times each. So we already know what the talking points basically are. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the, the only the only hope for any kind of fireworks is interpersonal dynamics between the people, I think. Right, exactly. Well, there was a loser on stage. <laughs> their, name was Tol- their name was Tulsi Gabbard. But, um, <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to that, I'm sure. So. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's. I guess let's get started here. Mm-hmm. So our first topic that I wrote about was impeachment. We're in the middle of the fourth presidential impeachment proceedings in our nation's history. Ambassador Gordon Sondland delivered testimony today in the House impeachment inquiry that buttressed the case that President Trump withheld military aid to Ukraine and a White House meeting with President Zelensky because he wanted the Ukrainian president to announce investigations that would benefit President Trump politically. Senator Warren, you have said already that you've seen enough to convict the president and remove him from office. You and four of your colleagues on this stage tonight, who are also U.S. senators, may soon have to take that vote. Will you try to convince your Republican colleagues in the Senate to vote the same way? And if so, how? 
Uh, of course I will. And the obvious answer is to say first, read the Mueller report, all 442 pages of it that showed how the president tried to obstruct justice. And when Congress failed to act at that moment, it meant the president felt free to break the law again and again and again. And that's what's happened with Ukraine. We have to establish the principle, no one is above the law. We have a constitutional responsibility and we need to meet it. But I want to add one more part based on today's testimony. And that is, how did Ambassador Sutherland get there? You know, this is not a man who had any qualifications except one. He wrote a check for a million dollars. And that tells us about what's happening in Washington. The corruption, how money buys its way into Washington. You know, I raised this months ago about the whole notion that donors think they're going to get ambassadorships on the other side. And I've taken a pledge. Anyone who wants to give me a big donation, don't ask to be an ambassador because I'm not going to have that happen. I asked everyone who's running for president to join me in that. And not a single person has so far. I hope what we saw today during the testimony means lots of people will sign on and say we are not going to give away the ambassador posts to the highest bidder. Senator Warren, thank you. Senator Klobuchar, you've said that you support the impeachment inquiry, but you want to wait for a Senate trial to hear the evidence and make a decision about convicting the president. After the bombshell testimony of Ambassador Sondland today, has that view changed for you? I have made it very clear that this is impeachable conduct, and I've called for an impeachment proceeding. I just believe our job as jurors is to look at each count and make a decision. But let me make very clear uh, that what this impeachment proceeding about is really our democracy at stake. Uh, this is a president that not only with regard to his conduct uh, with uh, Ukraine, uh, but every step of the way puts his own private interests, his own partisan interests, his own political interests in front of our country's interest. And this is wrong. This is a pattern with this man, and it goes to everything from how he has betrayed our farmers and our workers uh, to what he has done with foreign affairs, leaving the Kurds for slaughter, um, <clears throat> sucking up to Vladimir Putin every minute of the day. That is what this guy does. And I think it is very, very important that we have a president that's going to put our country first. I was thinking about this uh, when I was at the Carter Presidential Museum. And on the wall are etched the words of Walter Mondale when he looked back at their four years, not perfect. And he said this, we told the truth, we obeyed the law, we kept the peace. We told the truth, we obeyed the law, we kept the peace. That is the minimum that we should expect in a president of the United States. Senator, thank you. Senator Sanders, I'd like to go to you. Americans are watching these impeachment hearings. At the same time, they're also focused on their more immediate daily economic and family concerns. How central should the president's conduct uncovered by this impeachment inquiry be to any Democratic nominee's campaign for president? How central would it be to yours? Well, Rachel, uh, sadly, we have a president who is not only a pathological liar, he is likely the most corrupt uh, president in the modern history of America. But we cannot simply be consumed by Donald Trump. Because if we are, you know what? We're going to lose the election. Right now, you've got 87 million people who have no health insurance or are underinsured. We're facing the great existential crisis of our time in terms of climate change. You've got 500,000 people sleeping out on the street. And you got 18 million people paying half of their limited incomes for housing. 
What the American people understand is that the Congress can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. In other words, we can deal with Trump's corruption, but we also have to stand up for the working families of this country. We also have to stand up to the fact that our political system is corrupt, dominated by a handful of billionaires, and that our economy is rigged with three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of America. We can do it all when we rally the American people in the cause of justice. Mayor Buttigieg, let me put the same question to you. How central should the president's conduct uncovered by the impeachment inquiry be to a Democratic nominee's campaign? How central would it be to yours? Well, the constitutional process of impeachment should be beyond politics, and it is not a part of the campaign. But the president's conduct is. The impeachable conduct that we have seen in the abuse of power that we're learning more about in the investigations. But just to be clear, the president's already confessed to it on television. But that's just part of what we've seen. Under normal circumstances, a president would leave office after something that was revealed recently that barely got any attention at all, which was the president had to confess in writing, in court, to illegally diverting charitable contributions that were supposed to go to veterans. We are absolutely going to confront this president for his wrongdoing, but we are also each running to be the president who will lead this country after the Trump presidency comes to an end one way or the other. I'm running to be the president for that day the sun comes up and the Trump presidency is behind us, which will be a tender moment in the life of this country. And we are going to have to unify a nation that will be as divided as ever, and while doing it, address big issues that didn't take a vacation for the impeachment process or for the Trump presidency as a whole, a climate approaching the point of no return. The fact that we've still got to act on health care, kids learning active shooter drills before they learn to read, and an economy where even when the Dow Jones is looking good, far too many Americans have to fight like hell just to hold on to what they've got. Mr. Mayor. Those are the crises that will be awaiting the next president and will be at the heart of our campaign. Mr. Mayor, thank you. And um, Elizabeth Warren, they asked, she said she read the Mueller report. Uh, she wants to reform ambassador appointments. Uh... She pledges you can't buy an ambassadorship. Okay. Um, I don't know. It seems like a kind of a sidelong shot at Gordon Sondland. Well, yeah. I, yeah. Well, okay. I was thinking. I was sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm groggy and stuff from all this cold and everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Klobuchar talked about withholding judgment, um, but Trump doesn't look qualified. Um, I don't know. I don't know why anybody's still pretending that we're withholding judgment here. You know, Mitch McConnell and the, uh, the, the people who are judging the trial in the Senate aren't even pretending to withhold judgment for anything. So Yeah, well, I've heard Doug Jones in Alabama say that he's withholding judgment, but I mean... I don't know. It's probably more for just expediency reasons that he has to say that. So, yeah. Uh, Bernie Sanders called him the most corrupt president of our time. Uh, but we can't. But we can walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. Okay. So I guess you know, impeach him and get things done or something. 
Buttigieg mm-hmm. says Trump's misuse of charitable donation for the troops should be disqualifying. A lot of things should be, but they haven't been so far. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, Biden again says the same stupid thing that he always says. The number, the next president is going to have to do two things. Number one, defeat Donald Trump. Number two, be able to go into Donald Trump's. Wait, what? Be able to go into Donald Trump's. Be able to go into Donald. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay. The next president is going to start over. Okay. Biden (laughs) again says the same stupid thing. The next president is going to have to do two things. Number one, defeat Donald Trump. Number two, to be able to go into states like Georgia, North Carolina, and get a Senate majority. Uh, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, and Putin don't want me to be president. Who is most likely to win the Senate, House, and beat Trump? I guess he thinks himself. Yes, obviously. Um, and it's so stupid. He keeps saying this stupid line. He's got to do the next president's got to do two things. Number one, they got to defeat Donald Trump. Okay, we're talking about the next president. We're not talking about the, you know. By definition, the next president has already defeated Donald Trump. Okay, so stop fucking saying the same stupid thing. <laughs> we, we, you know, we ding you on this every time. Get it through your thick head. Stop saying the next president has to defeat Donald Trump first. We know that. <laughs> I, I know. I know why he says it. He's saying it because it's a, it's an electability argument, and he's he's the electable one, right? We yeah. keep hearing. Well, I also keep hearing that he's going to be thinking about uh, having a Republican be his running mate. This was the last That's thing the I heard. stupidest, stupidest. Mm-hmm. Uh, that should be disqualifying. Like, absolutely stupid. I but, mean, but, but, but he said, I can't think of one. <laughs> yeah. That was his qualifier. But it's like he's not close to the idea. You know, he's, he's open to it. You know, it's like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I heard that quote. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we don't need. I've I've heard him floating all kinds of ideas. So Stacey Abrams is going to be my vice president. Oh, I'll only serve one term, and then I'll let Stacey Abrams be your president. I promise. <laughs> and oh, maybe I'll let a Republican be the vice president if I can think of one. Just you know, <laughs> what a you know, this guy. I don't know. I can't talk. Uh, He's 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 like a person who's going to win the lottery and he's already spent it all, right? You know, already, <laughs> he thinks he's already won and he's already got a million different ways he's going to use the winnings here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, and most of them are not very encouraging, really. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> okay, so but anyways, I I know he I the point is I know why he's saying that he's saying that because it's an electability thing. He's like, yeah, you you may. Th- think you want bernie sanders more than me but like but at the end of the day i'm more likely to beat donald trump and at the end of the day that's what we have to do first right i know that's what he's trying to do with this argument right but um Mm -hmm. i don't think it works Mm -hmm. and i yeah i think the myth of his electability over donald trump is wildly inflated Mm -hmm. so okay um next we had harris Unfortunately, you know, she's out now. She's gone. But she said that she, we have a criminal in the White House and justice is on the ballot. Justice is on the ballot was, was a big kind of thing that she kept coming back to throughout the debate. Um, normal people suffer consequences. We need fair justice. OK, it's all true. 
Um, let's see. Elizabeth Warren. I can unite everyone in America because tax the rich. Uh, Buttigieg said something. Let's see. We can unify a majority. Mm, Booker. <laughs> more, 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 Booker and Warren seem to go back and forth here. He said more tax revenue, tax capital gains as ordinary revenue. Talk about how to grow wealth, more entrepreneurship. We as a party need to talk about taxing and creating wealth, just taxation, not a, a wealth tax. Venture capital, more entrepreneurship to grow inner cities and rural communities. I'm like, Booker, the topic was impeachment. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Somehow it got onto this thing. I don't know. I don't know how these conversations wind up where they do sometimes. Exactly. Um, any any thoughts on their responses about impeachment? Yeah, I thought you covered it pretty well. I mean, yeah, it's it's actually I don't know. It's kind of sad to see Kamala Harris be gone before some other people were gone. But uh, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be uh, interesting to see her in the Senate with the trial and stuff. So hopefully she brings some some hot fire to that. So yeah. Yeah, if we even see any trial, really. Yeah. Hey, if they want to hold it off until after the election, that's fine. Just let them squirm. <laughs> as long as as long as uh, Mitch McConnell and and Lindsey Graham aren't going to be pretend to be fair about it, you know. And I talked to him today. I said, "How you doing?" Well, I'm being impeached. Other than that, I'm doing okay. Uh, I think he uh, sees this as a partisan exercise. I think he's worried about the effect it will have on the presidency itself. But I told him, Mr. President, when you look at the last week, you've accomplished some things that would be a great year for any normal president. Uh, your legacy is going to now include being impeached by the House, acquitted by the Senate. The question is, will it be more than that? And I'm assured him, I assured him it would. I think this exercise in the House is beginning to weaponize impeachment. The Intel Committee conducted the fact-finding elements of it, which is unusual. The process they use, I think, is dangerous to the presidency as an institution. When it gets here, my goal is to have as short a trial as possible. I think it will be required to listen to the House's case based on the record assembled to impeach, that uh, there will come a point when the House has had a fair chance to make their case President's had a chance to respond without witnesses on either side, then we'll move to final passage. I don't want a motion to dismiss. I want a, uh, a vote on the articles themselves. I don't expect they can. All right, joining us now is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is with us, and his memoir, by the way, is entitled The Long Game. It includes a new forward by President Trump. And it's now out in paperback. Uh, Senator, good to see you. Welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Um, I want to find out about the new forward. I think most people don't fully understand. Let's assume for a minute that the House goes forward with this impeachment. And it's over to the Senate. Walk us through how this process works and the options available and what you, what you see happening and how you see this going down. First, as you've uh, pointed out to your viewers, uh, frequently the Democrats have been wanting to do this for three years. The first headline in the Washington Post 
before the president was inaugurated was they were going to impeach him. Well, they finally got around to it. And we assume we're going to see two articles of impeachment, both of them pretty weak stuff, uh, coming over to us. And your question is, what happens then? Under the rules of impeachment, the Senate then turns to it, has no option but to turn to it, and it's the sole business until we finish. Uh, how we can impact that uh, really is just with 51 votes. Uh, the Chief Justice is in the chair. Uh, I don't expect the Chief Justice to try to tilt the playing field either way. Uh, we'll listen to the uh, opening uh, arguments by the House uh, prosecutors. They will listen to the president's lawyers uh, respond. And then we'll have to make a decision about the way forward. And everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position as to uh, how to handle this uh, to the extent that we can. We're, we don't have the kind of ball control on this that a typical issue, for example, comes over for the House. If, if, if I don't like it, we don't take it up. We have no choice but to take it up, but we'll be working through this process, hopefully in a fairly short period of time, in total coordination uh, with the White House Counsel's Office and the people who are representing the President in the well of the Senate. So I've got to believe that the federal rules for the admission of evidence would apply here with the Chief Justice in charge, and that would mean there would be no hearsay evidence be allowed, and that would probably mean, well, you might have one or two uh, opinion people, fact or experts, but when we watch this process unfold in the House, especially in the Schiff show, everyone was a hearsay or an opinion witness. The one fact witness said, oh, the president said he wants nothing, no quid pro quo. That was the only fact witness that I saw. So that would be Ambassador Sondland. Would that be, in your view, how the, the federal rules of evidence would apply here? Well, exactly how we go forward, I'm going to coordinate with the president's lawyers. So there won't be any difference between us on how to do this. You raise the issue of what if you have witnesses. Uh, the president's counsel may or may not decide they want to have witnesses. The case is so darn weak coming over from the House. We all know how it's going to end. There's no chance the president's going to be removed from office. My hope is that there won't be a single Republican who votes uh, for either of these articles of impeachment. And, Sean, it wouldn't surprise me if we got one or two Democrats. It looks to me over in the House, the Republicans seem to be solid and the Democrats seem to be divided. Well, I, don't, I, I think you rightly point out this is very weak. I mean, we'll look, for example, at the, the obstruction issue. Um, so here, the president, like every other past president, has exerted executive privilege. Okay, yeah. they don't like it when there is a dispute between the legislative branch and the executive branch. Well, that would be the role of the judicial ran, uh, branch, which is to resolve the disputes between the other two branches of government. But apparently, they're in such a rush to do this that they didn't want to give the courts any time, or perhaps even worse, they feared what the courts would decide. Yeah, well, this, this is a thoroughly political exercise. It's not like a courtroom. Experience. It's a political exercise. They've been trying to do this for three years. They finally screwed up their courage to do it. It looks to me like it may be backfiring on them, particularly in swing districts uh, that the Speaker's party managed to win in order to get to the majority. Uh, most of the nervousness I see on this issue uh, with the politicians, since it's a political process, is on the Democratic side.
So you will allow, let's assume it comes over to the Senate. You're obligated to take it up. I think everybody understands that. Right. Uh, the, whoever the House chooses to present their case, they will present their case, however long period of time that takes. There is some dispute, and actually, I could probably be persuaded on either side, which for me is a rare thing, Senator. Um, and, and that would be, okay, a lot of people would like to bring up, bring in Adam Schiff, Hunter right. Biden, Joe Biden. I think I'm more inclined to agree with Senator Graham on this. It, it's tempting, and I do believe that, that all of those things must be looked into. There are a lot of real questions here. But I don't know if that would be the appropriate forum once you would have the, the 51 votes at that point to end this, which, again, very weak case. I think it would be smart to do so. Where would your inclination be? Yeah, again, I'm going to take my cues from the, from the president's lawyers. But, yes, if you, if you know you have the votes, you've listened to the arguments on both sides and believe the case is so uh, slim, so weak, that you have the votes to end it, uh, that might be what the president's lawyers would prefer. And you can certainly make a case for making it shorter rather than longer since it's such a weak case. Okay. Would, are you confident? So we, we talked about, for example, the obstruction charge, and the other one would be the abuse of power charge. You've read the phone call. You've watched, I'm sure, a lot of the coverage that has taken place in the House. Do you see any evidence of any wrongdoing whatsoever on the president's part? As you read that transcript, I read it. I read it over and over again. Uh, I certainly don't see what we hear Joe Biden bragging about. You're not getting yeah. a billion taxpayer dollars unless you fire the prosecutor he knew was investigating his son with yeah. zero experience making millions. That didn't happen. Well, this is, a, this is a really weak case. And that's why I think you're going to see bipartisan opposition to the articles uh, over yeah. in the House. How long do you think, and, I, and I, we'll move on from here, how long would you imagine after the House presents its case, and you, that will happen in full? Well, you would, look, if they do it this uh, next week, uh, Sean, uh, we will be able to cons get consent to go home for Christmas. So we would turn to it uh, right around the first of the year, and we would stay on it until we finish. And my hope is that it will be sh uh, a shorter process rather than a long, uh, lengthy process. So you have your book, yeah. and it, it, look, Donald Trump is a lot of things, and I probably have known him maybe longer than you, well over 20-some-odd years. Um, he's a disruptor. He's an iconoclast. He is a fighter. He's also gotten a lot of good things done for the country. Uh, kept a lot of promises you, with your help on judges, tax cuts. Uh, certainly, he's got the money for the wall, uh, ending burdensome regulation, better trade right. deals, Baghdadi's dead, the caliphate defeated. What have you learned over this time with the president now, almost three years, that maybe you didn't know? Well, let me tell you what this book is about. This book is about the most long-lasting contribution that Donald Trump and Senate Republicans have made for the country. And that is putting young men and women who are strict constructionists who believe the job of the judge is to follow the law on the courts. We did our 50th circuit court judge just yesterday. Sean, to put that in perspective, Barack Obama did 55 circuit judges in eight years. We've done 50 in three years. And we have at least a year left for sure. We're going to do more. One-fourth of the circuit judges, remember, most cases don't make it to the Supreme Court. Most complex litigation never makes it beyond the circuit courts. 
This has been the most long-lasting, important contribution the president could make well into the future, far beyond his tenure in office. Uh, so we'll have a judiciary more inclined not to make it up on the fly. You know, President Obama said he wanted to appoint judges who had empathy. Well, you know, that makes great sense if you're the litigant before the judge for whom the judge has empathy. Not so good if you aren't. Let's talk about the issue has come up. Let's say somebody were to retire at the end of, of this year uh, leading into the summer. You have been very clear if the president appointed somebody, you would follow through on that nomination. Absolutely. We definitely would do that. And this paperback that we were just talking about, the president's foreword is about judges. My afterword catches up what's happened during the Trump administration on judges, because my memoir came out three years ago before the president was elected. What we've done here, the president and I together with this paperback uh, that you've shown on the screen, is to talk about how the judge project came about how it went forward. If you can recall, Sean, the most important decision I've made in my entire political career was not to fill the Supreme Court vacancy when Justice Scalia passed away. That was the beginning. And now we've got an exclamation point here after three years that we thought the public would be interested in reading about. And that's why the president and I collaborated on this paperback. I was, I was shocked that uh, former President Obama left so many vacancies and didn't try to fill those positions. I'll Senator, tell you why. I'll tell you why. I was in yes, charge of the uh, of what we did the last two years of the Obama administration. I give I, and I will <laughs> give you full credit for that. And by the way, take a bow. All right, that was a good line. Um, well, congratulations on the book. We'll be watching obviously very closely in the Senate. Um, do you see any possible defections? Uh, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. There's zero chance the president obviously would be removed from office, and I'm hoping we'll have no defections at all. Do anything else. And then you just see Trump was like, oh, they just want to protect Joe Biden. That's why they want to not send it to the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm worried. Um, did you, have you ever heard of this, this podcast, Angry Americans? Mm-mm. No, okay. I've been listening to it a little bit recently. It's it's massively overproduced, and I don't <laughs> think the guy's half as angry as he pretends to be. But he, he pretends <laughs> to be kind of an an independent. He was like an Iraq War vet, and he's like been a political advocate for various things, a lot of veterans' issues and other stuff, I guess too. Mm. But so he runs this Angry Americans program and stuff, and it's got like a lot of sound drops and everything, and a lot of music, you know, that's supposed to be cool and everything. And, <laughs> but then, like for the beginning of the year thing, I was ordering some spicy chicken earlier tonight, listening to the New Year's thing, and he was down at the beach in Florida, and he was just talking to people on the beach, like, "Where are you from? What makes you angry?" And this one woman said, "Um, hi, yeah, I'm from New York City, and I'm angry at, um, I'm angry at." Nancy Pelosi. I'm like, yes, yes. Okay. Tell it, tell it. Now why? And she <laughs> said, well, cause she's just so focused on this. Um, you know, she's so focused on this impeachment thing and she's just not getting any bills passed. Oh my God. She's like, and Mitch McConnell's not going to do the impeachment thing. So she just needs to focus on the bills. And the guy's like, okay, I hear you. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> Mitch McConnell's holding up all the bills, too. <laughs> it's all his fault. You can be mad at Fancy Pelosi, but be mad at her for the right reason. You host a podcast, motherfucker. Check her on that bullshit. But, you know, so I, that, then I was angry. Another angry Americans. So sad way we go. I know. But, um, <laughs> but it's, 
yeah, it's like, um, I don't know. It was really frustrating because I, I don't know. This guy is just satisfied to identify that other people are also angry. You know, I don't know. He had, he had, uh, what's her name? Oh, uh, present miss present. Who? Little miss present. Oh, 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 <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tulsi. Yes. <laughs> Tulsi. He had Tulsi on a few weeks ago and stuff. And to be fair, he grilled her a little bit on some of the stuff, but again, he, he, I don't know. He kind of overplays his hand, I think, by giving too much mad props to anybody who comes on his show, no matter what side of the aisle they're from before they even start opening their mouth. But it's, uh, I don't know, it's interesting or whatever, so I, I don't know how I got off on this topic, but yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a podcast I won't be checking out. So. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on your don't recommends. Yeah, right. I, I'll be honest, he's, you know, he's he's got, he's had some interesting, I don't know, I have my suspicions that he's secretly leaning a little bit more Democrat than a lot of people would imagine, but because he plays it, he tries to play it like he's an independent who's stuck in the middle, but you know, he knows Donald Trump's an idiot and stuff. And he, <clears throat> you know, I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell if he's really like leaning democratic or if he's just, uh, he's just too effusively praising of anybody who shows up on his show. And that happens to be mostly Democrats or something. <laughs> so anyways, whatever. Um, yeah, that's something about, I don't know. Anyways, yeah, again, as you can tell, I'm still barely coherent from the fever here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, topic number two was Medicare for all. What do you say to voters who are worried that your position on Medicare for all could cost you critical votes in the general election? So I look out and I see tens of millions of Americans who are struggling to pay their medical bills. 37 million people who decided not to have a prescription filled because they just can't afford it. People who didn't take the tests the doctor recommended because they just can't afford it. So here is my plan. Let's bring as many people in and get as much help to the American people as we can, as fast as we can. On day one, as president, I will do uh, bring down the cost of prescription drugs on things like insulin and EpiPens. That's going to save tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars for people. I'm going to defend the Affordable Care Act from the sabotage of the Trump administration. And in the first 100 days, I'm going to bring in 135 million people into Medicare for All at no cost to them. Everybody under the age of 18, everybody who has a family of four income less than $50,000. I'm going to lower the age of Medicare to 50 and expand Medicare coverage to include uh, vision and dental and long-term care. And then in the third year, when people have had a chance to feel it and taste it and live with it, we're going to vote and we're going to want Medicare for all. Senator, Good thank I you, Senator. Senator Sanders, let me bring you into this conversation thank you. I wrote and the ask damn you bill. the question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to ask you the question this way, Senator Sanders. You describe your campaign, including your plans for Medicare for All, as a political revolution. Yes. President Obama explicitly said the country is, quote, less revolutionary than it is interested in improvement. The average American doesn't think we have to completely tear down the system and remake it, end quote. Is President Obama wrong? No, he's right. We don't have to tear, tear down the system. But we do have to do what the American people want. And the American people understand today 
that the current health care system is not only cruel, it is dysfunctional. Now, you tell me how we have a system in which we spend twice as much as do the people of any other country, and yet we got 87 million uninsured, underinsured. In some cases, we pay 10 times more for prescription drugs as do the people of Canada or other countries. 500,000 people go bankrupt because of medically related issues. They come down with cancer, and that's a reason to go bankrupt. Now, some of the people up here think that we should not take on the insurance industry. We should not take on the pharmaceutical industry. But you know what? If you think back to FDR, and if you think back to JFK, and Harry Truman, and Barack Obama, as a matter of fact, people have been talking about health care for all. Well, you know what? I think now is the time. And in the first week of my administration, we will introduce Medicare for all, Medicare for all, that means no deductibles, no co-payments, no out-of-pocket expenses. Senator That's where Sanders we got to go. Thank you, Senator Sanders. Vice President Biden. You know, uh, we can do this without uh, charging people raising $30, 40000000000000 trillion. The fact is that right now, the vast majority of Democrats do not support Medicare for all. It couldn't pass the United States Senate right now with Democrats. It couldn't pass the House. Nancy Pelosi is one of those people who then thinks it makes sense. We should build on Obamacare, provide the plan I put forward before anybody in here, adding a Medicare option in that plan, and not make people choose. Allow people to choose, I should say. But if you go the route of my two friends on my right and my left, you have to give up your private insurance. 160 million people like their private insurance. And if they don't like it, they can buy into a Medicare like proposal in my plan, drug prices go down, premiums go down across the board, but here's the deal. They get to choose. I trust the American people to make a judgment what they believe is in their interest and not demand of them what the insurance companies. They want no, no competition, and my friends say you have to only go Medicare for all. Elizabeth Warren says in the first 100 days, Medicare for all, then in 30 year vote on it once people have tasted it. Okay. Hmm. I don't know. I, I think Elizabeth Warren has been getting some criticism for having backed off, uh, backed off Medicare for all. Yeah. I've been I think hearing about that. Yeah. And I guess one of the things is that like this idea that we'll vote on it in the third year. Well, in the third year, that's when you've already lost your house and Senate majorities potentially. Mm -hmm. If you, if you get them to begin with, right, you've got those guys for two years. So, Anything you want to get locked in, you need to do it in the first two years. You can't, you know, we're going to have a trial period and then we're going to we're going to lock it in in the third year. Mm. It's just like it's politically insipid as far as I can tell. Like it just gives Republicans enough time to, to rally their troops against it mm-hmm. at the time that you're actually going to put it to a vote. So I don't know. Maybe there's, you know, there's greater minds than, than mine at work on this or something, but. Seems yeah, like a bad idea. That's a good point. Bernie Sanders, for like the fifth time, says I wrote the damn bill. <laughs> Bernie, time to let it go. Come up with a new punchline. You've got you've got a menu. We know you do. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm tired of having to cover this on this podcast, Bob. I, I wrote the damn bill, as I like to say, as I've said before. I wrote you may the have, damn bill. You may have heard this before. If anyone wants to join me <laughs> this time saying it. I wrote the damn bill. <laughs> I wrote the damn bill. 
<laughs> I wish he would, you know, he's got to be like Fox Mulder in front of FBI, you know, in mm-hmm. front of the uh, mirror, just FBI, you know, just <laughs> try different mon- intonations. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so Biden, majority of Democrats don't support uh, Medicare for all. Build on. Let's just build on Obamacare. OK, very inspirational, Mr. Vice President. <laughs> Uh, okay, Tulsi Gabbard, here we go. What does she say? Congresswoman Gabbard, you have criticized Hillary Clinton as the, quote, personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party. What is the rot you see in the Democratic Party? That our Democratic Party, unfortunately, is not the party that is of, by, and for the people. It's a, it is a party that has been and continues to be influenced by the foreign policy establishment in Washington, represented by Hillary Clinton and others' foreign policy, by the military-industrial complex and other greedy corporate interests. I'm running for president to be the Democratic nominee that rebuilds our Democratic Party, takes it out of their hands, and truly puts it in the hands of the people of this country, a party that actually hears the voices of Americans who are struggling all across this country and puts it in the hands of veterans and fellow Americans who are calling for an end to this ongoing Bush-Clinton-Trump foreign policy doctrine of regime change wars, overthrowing dictators in other countries, needlessly sending my brothers and sisters in uniform into harm's way to fight in wars that actually undermine our national security and have cost us thousands of American lives. These are wars that have cost us as American taxpayers trillions of dollars since 9-11 alone, dollars that have come out of our pockets, out of our hospitals, out of our schools, out of our infrastructure needs. As president, I will end this foreign policy, end these regime change wars, work to end this new Cold War and arms race, and instead invest our hard-earned taxpayer dollars actually into serving the needs of the American people right here at home. Senator Harris, any response? Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think that um, it's unfortunate that we have someone on the stage who is attempting to be the Democratic nominee for President of the United States, who during the Obama administration spent four years full-time on Fox News criticizing President Obama. That's ridiculous, That's ridiculous. Who has spent full-time criticizing people on this stage as affiliated with the Democratic Party. When Donald Trump was elected, not even sworn in, buddied up to Steve Bannon to get a meeting with Donald Trump in the Trump Tower, fails to call a war criminal by what he is as a war criminal, and then spends full time during the course of this campaign, again, criticizing the Democratic Party. What we need on the stage on, in the November is someone who has the ability to win. And by that, we need someone on that stage who has the ability to go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump and someone who has the ability to rebuild the Obama coalition and bring the party and the nation together. I believe I am that candidate. Thank you, Senator. Um, Congress, yes. Congresswoman Gabbard, I'll give you a chance what, what, to respond. What Senator Harris is doing is unfortunately continuing to traffic in lies and smears and innuendos because she cannot challenge the substance of the argument that I'm making, the leadership and the change that I'm seeking to bring in our foreign policy, which only makes me guess that she will, as president, continue 
the status quo, continue the Bush-Clinton-Trump foreign policy of regime change wars, which is, is deeply destructive. This is personal to me because I served in Iraq. I left my seat in the state legislature in Hawaii, volunteered to deploy to Iraq, where I served in a medical unit where every single day I saw the terribly high human cost of war. I take very seriously the responsibility that the president has to serve as commander-in-chief, to lead our armed forces, and to make sure always, no, I'm not going to put party interests first. I will put the Thank interests you. of the American Thank you, people Congresswoman. above I wanna, all I want to briefly give Senator Harris a final second to respond. I believe that uh, what our nation needs right now is a nominee who can speak to all people. I spent my entire career standing mostly in a courtroom speaking five words, Kamala Harris for the people. And it was about all the people, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of where they live geographically, regardless of the party with which they're registered to vote or the language their grandmother speaks. We need someone on this debate stage in November who has the ability to unify the country and to win the election. Thank and I believe, again, I am that candidate. Democratic Party is not of, by, and for the people. It's a party that is influenced by the uh, foreign policy establishment represented by Hillary Clinton and others, uh, by the military-industrial complex and other greedy corporate in interests. Bush, Clinton, Trump, foreign policy, doctrine of regime change, uh, overthrowing dictators in other countries, uh, in this Cold War and arms race. Well, I don't know. Cost us trillions, da da da, da. I don't know. I think the topic was Medicare for all, Gabbard. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and Harris, God bless her, Harris was in there to say uh, Gabbard buddied up to Steve Bannon to get a meeting with Trump in Trump Tower, uh, fails to call a war criminal a war cr criminal, full-time under Obama on Fox News criticizing Obama, full-time during this campaign criticizing the Democratic Party. You know, this is, again, I think like between Buttigieg and Harris, I enjoy having them both there to kind of tag team Gabbard. Yeah, but I think uh, like did De did Gabbard even come in for the the December debate, or was she not there for that? She either principally said that she wouldn't do it, which is laughable, but then I think maybe she didn't qualify to or something. I'm not entirely sure. I'll have to look that one up. But I want to thank all of you so much for your support. I need to share something with you that's very important. There are so many of you who I've had the opportunity to meet in Iowa and New Hampshire who've expressed to me how frustrated you are that the DNC and the corporate media are essentially trying to usurp your role as voters in choosing who our Democratic nominee will be. I share your concerns, and I'm sure that all of our supporters throughout the country do as well. Now, the 2016 Democratic primary election was rigged by the DNC and their partners in the corporate media against Bernie Sanders. In this 2020 election, the DNC and the corporate media are rigging the election again, but this time it's against the American people in the early voting states of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. They're attempting to replace the roles of voters in the early states using polling and other arbitrary methods, which are not transparent or democratic, and they're holding so-called debates, which really are not debates at all, but rather commercialized reality television meant to entertain rather than to inform or enlighten. 
So in short, the DNC and the corporate media are trying to hijack the entire election process. So in order to bring attention to this serious threat to our democracy and to ensure that your voice is heard, I'm seriously considering boycotting the next debate on October 15th. I'm going to announce my decision within the next few days. But I just want to say with my deepest and warmest aloha, thank you all again for your support. Yeah, I don't think yeah. she was there for the December debate, so. Okay, well, it's very convenient to object on principle when you don't meet the criteria <laughs> already, so. It works out well. Yeah, I think I think the criteria is, like, going up steadily, so I think that you have to, like, not only get, because it used to be you had to get a certain number mm -hmm. in the polls or the fundraising, and then it was, like, you had to get both, and now you have to get, like, a higher of both, and so mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's why people are getting picked off here, so. Yeah, well. Tulsi Gabbard can cry, tear, yeah. <laughs> Criteria, get it? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah could be kind of like an exclamation in Korean sometimes. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> so cry, tear, yeah. I don't know. I gotcha. <laughs> Fever's still working over on me. Okay. <laughs> Full steam ahead. Okay. The stayer. I've built progressive infrastructure against corporations. And I want term limits. Mm, okay. I think I think we've kind of gone off of Medicare for all. I think one thing I noticed about this debate, Bob, is that a lot of times they started on one topic, and I'm used to in previous debates they would stick on that and get everybody in on it. But in this one, they would like switch it every three or four people to a different topic, or they'd ask somebody a specific question, which would take them to a different direction. Mm-hmm. So like by the end of the pages, it was really rapid cycling. Like they'd get three or four people in on a question and they'd jump to another question, just kind of going around and around the topics. So I don't know. It started on Medicare for all, but at some point they may have asked a question that changed it for these people. I don't know. Um, Klobuchar says overturn Citizens United. I raised $17,000 from ex-boyfriends and it's not an expanding base. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's okay. Zinger. Okay. <laughs> we can't stand Klobuchar, but that was kind of a zinger. Okay. Yeah. Admittedly. Yeah. Um, I did notice that one. Yeah. She doesn't got any, other, any new ex-boyfriends coming out there, so she can't keep printing money that way. <laughs> but, um. I don't know. I think my mom likes Amy Klobuchar now. I don't know why. Uh. <laughs> oh. um. Yang says, I just... Uh, I just want to stand up for Tom Steyer. You can't knock someone for having money and spending it in the right way. Okay. China's beating us in AI. We are 24 years behind. I don't know why 24. It seems very specific. <laughs> okay. Buttigieg. I'm least wealthy on stage. I don't golf. I know that from the perspective of Washington, what goes on in my city might look small, but frankly, where we live, the infighting on Capitol Hill is what looks small. Ooh, <laughs> zinger. <laughs> Hoosier zinger. It all looks small to us Hoosiers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Amy Klobuchar said a woman couldn't be a candidate with Buttigieg's experience. Um, if you think a woman can't beat Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi does it every day. 
Senator Klobuchar, you said this of Mayor Buttigieg, quote, of the women on the stage, do I think that we would be standing on that stage if we had the experience he had? No, I don't. Maybe we're held to a different standard. Senator, what did you mean by that? First of all, um, I've made very clear I think that Pete is qualified to be up on this stage, and I am honored to be standing next to him. But what I said was true. Women are held to a higher standard. Otherwise, we could play a game called Name Your Favorite Woman President, which we can't do because it has all been men, um, including all vice presidents being men. And I think any working woman out there, any woman that's at home, knows exactly what I mean. We have to work harder, and that's a fact. But I want to dispel one thing, because for so long, why has this been happening? I don't think you have to be the tallest person on this stage to be president. I don't think you have to be the skinniest person. I don't think you have the loudest voice on the stage. I don't think that means that you will be the one that should be president. I think what matters is if you're smart, if you're competent, and if you get things done. I am the one that has passed over 100 bills as the lead Democrat in that gridlock of Washington in Congress on this stage. I think you've got to win. And I am the one, Mr. Vice President, uh, that has been able to win every red and purple congressional district as the lead on a ticket every time. I govern both with my head and my heart. And if you think a woman can't beat Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi does it every single day. <laughs> Mr. Vice President, Mr. Vice President, just a quick response. I think a woman's qualified to be president. There's no reason why. If you think the woman's the most qualified person now, you should vote for them. The reason why I think I should be president and be the nominee is, number one, I have brought people together my entire career. In the United States Senate, I've passed more major legislation than everybody on this stage combined, from the Violence Against Women Act to making sure we have uh, the, the Chemical Weapons Treaty to dealing with Milosevic, the whole range of things that I've been engaged in my whole career. I've done it. I've brought people together. I'm always told by everybody on here, things have changed. You can't do that anymore. If we can't, I thought the question was initially asked of the senator, how do you unify this country? We have to unify this country. I have done it. I have done it repeatedly. And lastly, to be commander-in-chief, there's no time for on-the-job training. I've spent more time in the Situation Room, more time abroad, more time than anybody up here. I know every major world leader. They know me, and they know when I speak, if I'm the President of the United States, who we're for, who we're against, and what we'll do, and we'll keep our word. Oh, God, another zinger. But it's like, yes, Nancy Pelosi beats him. How many times? How many times have we seen, you know, uh, daily cost or something on Facebook. Oh, she does it again. Go queen. It's like, okay, <laughs> we're waiting for the consequences to be handed down, right? Of her yeah. beating him all the time. Like that's what we're waiting for. So I'm not waiting for more symbolic victories from women over Trump here. So yeah, well, as Jay-Z once said, uh, moral victories are for minor league coaches. <laughs> <laughs> which, which song was that off of? I don't remember. That uh, album. I think it was the black album maybe but okay i think i i own some i owned most of his earlier ones i didn't i don't know if i got the later ones though all right um biden says i've got experience okay all right that's my first page of notes <laughs> all right page two booker he said something oh well um, that's uh, sorry it was actually a kanye west song called so appalled off of my beautiful dark twisted fantasy jay-z verse uh, on that anyway uh, <laughs> neither here nor there go on <laughs> okay 
Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. Kanye West. Okay, another topic. Yeah, we don't have to veer off into that. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) He he had some good songs back in the day and stuff, but yeah, he's unforgivable at this point, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Somebody, they asked, should should lock him up, Chance, be discouraged? They asked Sanders because apparently some people at a Bernie Sanders event were chanting lock him up about Trump. And Sanders says, no one is above the law. People aren't that divided on the issues. Um, Biden says, I wouldn't direct my Justice Department like this president does. Civility, tweeting, lost control, something, something, something. He he started talking about something and he kind of lost it. I don't know what Biden was. He he lost his lost his train of thought, I think, at that point. Mm. That doesn't, sound uh, like, that doesn't sound like Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out of character for him. Weird. When President Ford pardoned President Nixon, he said it was to heal the country. Would you support a potential criminal investigation into President Trump after he leaves office, even if you thought it might further inflame the country's divisions? Look, I would not direct my Justice Department like this president does. I'd let them make their independent judgment. I would not dictate who should be prosecuted or who should be exonerated. That's not the role of the president of the United States. It's the attorney general of the United States, not the president's attorney, private attorney. And so I would, whatever was determined by the attorney general I supported, that I appointed, let them make an independent judgment. If that was the judgment, that he violated the law and he should be, in fact, criminally prosecuted, then so be it. But I would not direct it. And I don't think it's a good idea that we mock, that, that, we, that we model ourselves after Trump and say, lock him up. Look, we have to bring this country together. Let's start talking civilly to people and treating, you know, the next president who starts tweeting should, anyway. <laughs> It just, we, look, it's about civility. We have to restore the soul of this country. And that's not who we are. That's not who we've been. That's not who we should be. Follow the law. Let the Justice Department make the judgment as to whether or not someone should be prosecuted, period. Senator Sanders, let me ask you briefly to respond to that, the difference of your opinion, of opinion there with Vice President Biden. Well, no, I think uh, Joe is right. Uh, I think that it is the function of the Attorney General But what I am of the opinion is that the American people now do believe, and the more they see these uh, impeachment hearings on television, they do believe that we have a president who thinks he's above the law. We have a president who is engaged in corruption. We have a president who has obstructed justice. And in my view, somebody who has violated the emoluments clause. I think Joe is right. That is the function of an independent Department of Justice. But my inclination is that the American people do believe that this president is in violation of the law. Can I, can I respond very quickly? Uh, briefly, sir. Briefly, Distinction. Sir. Should he be impeached and should he be thrown out of office? That's one question. He's very close to impeach. He's indicted himself. Number two, after he's thrown out of office or after he's defeated, should he be then prosecuted? Should he be prosecuted for a criminal offense while he was president? That's a judgment to be made by an attorney general. 
Okay. Child care and paid family leave was brought up. We now focus on an issue facing many Americans, child care and paid family leave. Here in Georgia, the average price of infant daycare can be as much as $8,500 per child per year. That's more than in-state tuition at a four-year public college in Georgia. Mr. Yang, what would you do as president to ease that financial burden? <laughs> There are only two countries in the world that don't have paid family leave for new moms, the United States of America and Papua New Guinea. That is the entire list, and we need to get off this list as soon as possible. <laughs> I would pass paid family leave as one of the first things we do. I have two kids myself who are four and seven, one of whom is autistic and has special needs, and it's breaking families' backs. We need to start supporting our kids and families from the beginning, because by the time they're showing up to pre-K and kindergarten, in many cases, they're already years behind. Studies have shown that two-thirds of our kids' educational outcomes are determined by what's happening to them at home. This is stress levels, number of words read to them as children, type of neighborhood, whether a parent has time to spend with them. So we need to have a freedom dividend in place from day one, $1,000 a month for every American adult, which would put, in many cases, $2,000 a month into families' pockets so that they can either pay for childcare or, if they want, stay home with the child. We should not be pushing everyone to leave the home in, and go to the workforce. Many parents see that trade-off and say if they leave the home and work, they're going to be spending all the money on childcare anyway. In many cases, it would be better if the parent stays home with the child. Thank you, Mr. Yang. Sticking with this topic, no parent in the United States is federally guaranteed a single day of paid leave when they have a new baby. A number of you on stage tonight have plans to address this. Senator Harris, you're one of the candidates proposing legislation to guarantee up to six months of paid family leave. And Senator Klobuchar, you're one of the candidates proposing up to three months. I want to hear from both of you on this, starting with you, Senator Klobuchar. Why three months? I looked at this economically, and I want to make sure that we help people, because as just pointed out, uh, we are way behind the curve our country is when it comes to providing paid family leave and child care. We must do this, and we will do this if we have the right person heading up the ticket so we can win big. But what I have done with all of my plans is I have showed how I'm going to pay for them meticulously. I think that is really, really important when we have a president in the White House right now who have told over 10,000 lies. So when you look at my website at amyklobuchar.com, you will see my plans and you're also going to see I'm, how I'm going to pay for it. And I think that is so important because this president is literally increasing the debt, treating our farmers and workers like poker chips in a bankrupt casino and really putting this country in a worse financial situation every single day. So yes, my plan is three months. I think that's good. I'd love to do more. As I've said before, I'd love to staple free diplomas under people's chairs. I just am not going to go for things, and this is not, I'm not talking about Senator Harris's plan here, but I'm talking about some of the other ideas uh, that have been out here. I am not going to go for things just because they sound good on a bumper sticker and then throw in a free car. I think that we have an obligation, we have an obligation as a party um, to be, yes, fiscally responsible, yes, think big, but make sure we have people's backs and are honest with them about what we can pay for. And that is everything from sending rich kids to college for free, which I don't support, um, to kicking $149 million off their health insurance, thank, current health insurance, thank you, in four years. Thank I you. just think we have to be smart about how we thank do you, this. Thank you, Senator. And Senator Harris, why six months, and also how would you pay for that? 
Sure, and, and, and everybody, please visit my website, KamalaHarris.org, for the details on everything I talk about. Um, six months. So part of how I believe we're going to win this election is it is going to be because we are focused on the future. We are focused on the challenges that, that are presented today and not trying to bring back yesterday to solve tomorrow. So on paid family leave, it is no longer the case in America that people are having children in their 20s. People are having children in their 30s, often in their 40s, which means that these families and parents are often raising young children and taking care of their parents, which requires a lot of work from traveling back and forth to a hospital to daycare to all of the activities that are required, much less the health care needs that are required. And what we are seeing in America today is the burden principally falls on women to do that work. And many women are having to make a very difficult choice whether they're going to leave a profession for which they have a passion to care for their family or whether they are going to give up a paycheck that is part of what that family relies on. So six months paid family leave is meant to and is designed to adjust to the reality of women's lives today. The reality also is that women are not paid equal for equal work in America. We passed the Equal Pay Act in 1963, but fast forward to the year of our Lord 2019, and women are paid 80 cents on the dollar, black women 61 cents, Native American women 58 cents, Latinas 53 cents. Thank you. So, but, so my policy is about, a, there's a whole collection of work that I am doing that is focused on women and working women in America and the inequities and therefore the injustice that women in America are facing that needs to be resolved and, and addressed. Thank you, Senator. And Yang said the freedom dividend, of course, plus mm -hmm. paid family leave. Okay. Harris said guaranteed six months paid family leave. Klobuchar says three months guaranteed. Uh, <laughs> And they said, well, why, why are you only giving three months if Harris is giving six months? She said, and sarcastically, Klobuchar said, I'd love to staple free diplomas under people's chairs, but I'm not going to or something. It's like, oh, the next topic was housing. Mr. Steyer, millions of working Americans are finding that housing has become unaffordable, especially in metropolitan areas. It is particularly acute in your home state of California and places like Los Angeles and San Francisco. Why are you the best person to fix this problem? When you look at inequality in the United States of America, you have to start with housing. Where you put your head at night determines so many things about your life. It determines where your kids go to school. It determines the air you breathe, where you shop, how long it takes you to get to work. What we've seen in California is as a result of policy, we have millions too few housing units. And that affects everybody in California. It starts with a homeless crisis that goes all through the state, but it also includes skyrocketing rents affect every single working person in the state of California. I understand exactly what needs to be done here, which is we need to change policy and we need to apply resources here to make sure that we build literally millions of new units. But the other thing that's going to be true about building these units is we're going to have to build them in a way that's sustainable. That in fact, how we build units, where people live, has a dramatic impact on climate and on sustainability. So we are going to have to direct dollars, we're going to have to change policy and make sure that the 
the localities and municipalities who've worked very hard to make sure that there are no new housing units built in their towns, that they have to change that and we're going to have to force it and then we're going to have to direct federal dollars to make sure that those units are affordable so that working people can live in places and not Thank be you, spending 50% of their income on rent. Thank you, Mr. Steyer. Senator Warren, I see your hand raised. Yes. Um, think of it this way. Our housing problem in America is a problem on the supply side, and that means that the federal government stopped building new housing a long time ago, affordable housing. Also, private developers, they've gone up to the mansions. They're not building the little two-bedroom, one-bath house that I grew up in, garage converted to be a bedroom for my three brothers. So I've got a plan for 3.2 million new housing units in America. Those are housing units for working families, for the working poor, for the poor poor, for seniors who want to age in place, for people with disabilities, for people who are coming back from being incarcerated. It's about tenants' rights, but there's one more piece. Housing is how we build wealth in America. The federal government has subsidized the purchase of housing for decades for white people, and has said for black people, you're cut out of the deal. That was known as redlining. When I built a housing plan, it's not only a housing plan about building new units, it's a housing plan about addressing what is wrong about government-sponsored discrimination, how we need to address you, it, and we need to say we're gonna reverse Thank it. Thank you, Senator. Senator Booker? Uh, I, I'm so grateful, again. As a mayor who was a mayor during a recession, who was a mayor during a housing crisis, who started my career as a tenants' rights lawyer. Uh, this are all good points, but we're not talking about something that is going on all over America, which is gentrification and low-income families being moved further and further out, often compounding racial, racial segregation. And so all of these things, we need to put more federal dollars in it, but we've got to start empowering people. We use our tax code to move wealth up, the, the mortgage interest deduction. My plan is very simple. If you're a renter, who pays more than a third of your income in rent, then you will get a refundable tax credit between the amount you're paying and the area median rent. That empowers people in the same way we empower homeowners. And what that does is it actually slashes poverty, 10 million people out. And by the way, for those people who are facing eviction, it is about time that the only people when they show up in rentals court that have a lawyer is not the landlord, it is also low-income families struggling to stay in their home. And Steyer said, build millions of new housing units that are sustainable, okay. Warren said, 3.2 million more houses, small, not McMansions, address redlining. Is redlining still a thing? I thought it was like a historical thing. I mean, we're still living with the consequences of it. I don't think it's like federal policy anymore. I'm, I'm pretty okay. sure. I could be wrong about that, but yeah. I just, yeah. Hmm. I mean, okay. I think every community had it. And I think we're still dealing with the consequences now. I don't think it's like still the policy as far as I know. Okay. But, well, then, I, yeah, because I wasn't really sure what that meant then because I, I was assuming. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, Cory Booker said gentrification, racial segregation. If you're a renter that pays more than one third of your income in rent, then you'll get a refundable tax credit between the amount you're paying and the area median rent. And I was like, whoa, whoa, slow down. That's, I, I think I need to hire a, an accountant to figure out what that means. <laughs> okay. If you're a renter that pays more than one third of your income in rent, 
you'll get a refundable tax credit. So this is like what at the end of the year or something or how does I guess work? I don't know. <laughs> and the tax credit is between the amount you're paying and the area median rent. What does that mean? <laughs> like what? <laughs> you know, I you know this is again this is where the kind of the wonkish you know the wonkish kind of solution falls flat is that like a person who theoretically could benefit from something like this can't understand the shit, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what that means. So it may, you sounds you maybe good. Yeah. yeah. It sounds good. I guess it doesn't really fit on a bumper sticker or a hat or anything, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a tax credit motherfucker. Yeah. It was in between what I was already paying and the area median rent. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Booyah. Yes, we can. <laughs> you heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Four more years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. Uh, anyways, yeah. So that was, I don't know, Booker was talking about something, sounded maybe good, but couldn't really understand it. Um, continuing farm subsidies. They came to Pete Buttigieg because he's a Hoosier, I suppose. American farmers are struggling under the effects of President Trump's trade war with China. The Trump administration's payments to farmers to offset those losses already have a price tag that is more than double what was spent on the Obama administration's auto bailout. Mayor Buttigieg, would you continue those farm subsidies? We shouldn't have to pay farmers to take the edge off of a trade war that shouldn't have been started in the first place. I will support farmers, but not long ago, I was in Boone, Iowa. Guy came up to me. He said, I got my Trump bailout check, but I would have rather spent that money on conservation. By the way, this isn't even making farmers whole. If you're in soybeans, for example, you're getting killed. And it's not just what this president's done with the trade war. In a lot of parts of the country, the worst thing is these so-called small refineries waivers, which are killing those who are involved in ethanol. Look, I don't think this president cares one bit about farmers. He keeps asking them to take one for the team. But more and more, I'm talking to people in rural America who see that they're not going to benefit from business as usual under this president. I believe that so many of the solutions lie with American farmers, but we have to stand up for them, not just with direct subsidies and support, but with making sure we do something about the consolidation, the monopolies that leave farmers with fewer places to purchase supplies from and fewer places to sell their product to. And American farming should be one of the key pillars of how we combat climate change. I believe that the quest for the carbon negative farm could be as big a symbol of dealing with climate change as the electric car in this country. And it's an important part of how we make sure that we get a message out around dealing with climate change that recruits everybody to be part of Mr. the solution, Mr. including conservative communities where a lot of people have been made to feel that admitting climate science would mean acknowledging they're part of the problem. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I need you to answer the question. Would you continue those subsidies or not? Yes, but we won't need them because we're going to fix the trade war. Thank you, sir. And he says farmers aren't being made whole. Continued subsidies, but won't need them because we're going to end the trade war. Okay. Um, then it was off to the next topic, the climate crisis. Gabbard, this is not a Democrat issue. This is not a Republican mm -hmm. issue. I was like, look at the, look at this bitch. Look at this. Mm -hmm. She just said Democrat issue. You know That's who a... the only people who say Democrat anything are? Yeah. It's fucking Republicans trying to yeah. get under motherfucker skins. Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. And here she is going on about 
It's a oh, classic it's one. The Democrat issue. It's a republic. It's it's always the Republicans versus the Democrats, or it's it's a Republican thing versus a Democrat thing. It's not a Democratic thing, uh, you know. I, mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about here? I do. Yeah, I know. I've I've yeah I've researched this before. It's an old kind of slight, you know, that people use for sure. <clears throat> yeah. So she's in on it too, and like you know. If she's she's ostensibly within the Democratic Party, I mean, like even more so, I think. I mean, she was in the DNC and she had resigned or whatever the protest in 2016 or whatever. But like I would, you know, even Bernie Sanders being an independent, I would not expect him to play these uh, little pedantic uh, language games about mm-hmm. what what is or what is not a Democrat or what's Democratic or what's, you know, capital D Democrat or a big D, little D Democrat or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, you know, that's that's right there. That's another sign, people. I, I actually did is, notice that, too. Yeah. Yeah. She's, you know, somebody said something the other day, like, we got to vote blue no matter who. And I said, yeah, that's that's pretty much what I intend to do unless mm-hmm. it's Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> I said, I, I, if it's Tulsi Gabbard versus Donald Trump, Putin's already won <laughs> both ways. He, he he makes his money coming and going that way, you know, so you know, he can have it if it comes to that. Now, fortunately, I don't think it's going to come <laughs> down to that. But yeah. Um, no, I'm 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 pretty much the same way. That's like the only thing. I, is Marion Williamson still in it? I don't know. Like, I'm not sure I could go for that either. But <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't I, heard much from her lately. No, but I mean, I I would vote for Marion Williamson over Donald Trump. But but True. I, I I don't think you know. I don't know. I don't detect the level of uh, duplicitous and malevolence from Marion Williamson that I do from from uh true from Gabbard. Yeah. Fair enough. So this is not a Democrat issue. This is not a Republican issue. What yeah. She's just being intentionally I don't even know what the word is anymore. Oh Cha, I hate to interrupt you, but I just got some breaking news that may actually it doesn't matter because we already watched this debate, but Julian Castro has dropped out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Julian Castro. Who all is? Yeah, he he wasn't in this debate, was he? He was not in. Oh it, yeah, I guess that. he didn't even make it to this debate. He probably didn't make it to this one or the December one. Yeah. Okay. So so who? Okay, Harris is out. He's out. Who else is out now? Let me let me look at the list here. Yeah, it's it's getting whittled down. I think we might be below twenty now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Biden, Warren, yeah, Sanders, Buttigieg, Klobuchar somehow, mm-hmm. Stayer I, I assume is staying there, mm-hmm. Yang. All right, I'm getting to it. Gabbard somehow for a few more days. I hope she's the next one. Although she says she's going to stay until the until the. Uh... Mm-hmm until the convention i think right all right so we got michael bennett still in somehow (laughs) joe biden michael bloomberg cory booker pete Buttigieg, julian castro except not anymore 
John Delaney is still in somehow. Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> uh, Amy Klobuchar. Deval Patrick. Uh, Bernie oh. Sanders. Tom Steyer. Elizabeth Warren. Marianne Williamson. And Andrew Yang. So. Okay, so how many is that total? Is it like All right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. <laughs> now we're down Still to fifteen. In well, fourteen because okay. that I was counting uh, Castro, but yeah, so it's fourteen. Okay, and apparently only like less than seven that can still get on a debate stage. Thank God. Yeah, <laughs> making yeah. our lives a little bit easier in the future exactly. going forward potentially. Yeah, Bloomberg still hasn't made it to a debate, thank God. Uh, yeah. Deval, yeah, Deval Patrick hasn't made it. I don't think Marion Williams something I don't understand about all this shit, too, is, mm -hmm. frankly, and it's something that we see with, with Bloomberg, you know, mm -hmm. is this guy just comes in and drops a shitload of money, and suddenly mm -hmm. he's pulling like 5% of the Democratic primary, right? Mm hmm And I'm thinking... We're out here, you know, paying attention, following the issues and so forth. And somebody comes along and spends money and suddenly they get people's support. Like how? Like how does the fact that somebody spent money get them support? I don't I don't even understand that. Like when they're saying, you know, all the Democrats are raising money and stuff. And I'm like, and but they're saying, but Donald Trump has actually raised more money in the primary so far. I'm like, OK, well if people are doing what they're supposed to be doing, if they're paying attention, why does that matter? It doesn't matter how many ads Donald Trump puts in front of my face. I still know he's an asshole. I'm never going to vote for him. <laughs> so who are these people whose votes can just be bought with like, if you put an ad in front of them, they get brainwashed and like, Oh, okay. I guess I should vote for this guy. Like how yeah. does this, how does this stuff make a difference anymore? I don't know. I mean, maybe like it's just targeted advertising or people that aren't normally Democrats, maybe, possibly. I don't know. But. Yeah. I don't get it. I mean, everybody says, like, oh, I can't be influenced by advertising. But I really don't think I can be in, in politics. Although, you know, I don't know. In 2016, we all got pretty, you know, angry at Hillary Clinton or something. <laughs> and mm -hmm. there are some reasons for that. But at the same time, it was like, you know, at the end of the day, I voted, but like there were people probably in the similar situation to me who were like, no, I can't vote for her. I won't do it. You know, so maybe they were, you know, yeah, targeted by some kind of effective ads, I guess. But like it works on somebody. Yeah, you're right, <laughs> though. I don't ever see it working on me personally, but I don't know. I think we're smarter than the average bear. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just like, but I, I just don't understand, like. Who's the person who wasn't paying attention? You know, maybe they were lightly supporting somebody, but then like, then Warren, what's his name? Buffett or whatever? No, no, no. What's his, the rich guy's name? Oh, Warren Buffett. No, no. The, uh, George, the George. For... Oh, I was going to say George Soros. <laughs> All the billionaires are the same to me. <laughs> no, no. Uh, no. Bloomberg. What's his guy? Bloomberg. Bloomberg. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, who's the person who, like, gets hit by, like, Bloomberg ad buys all of a sudden? It's like, well, I want to support this guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, who, who is that in the Democratic, you know, primary situation? I don't know. And frankly, we would probably already have a solid front runner who could beat Donald Trump if these people would pay attention. Yeah. Well, why isn't uh, – I've heard people say, why doesn't Bloomberg just buy Fox News? 
And I don't know that it's for sale, but that would actually be more effective if he wants to. Jump. I mean, if if he's not just a you know focused on him being president, if he wants to actually affect change, he could either get involved in like local races or just take mm-hmm. away the like propaganda machine. You know, it's like he if he could if he could buy that. I don't know that the Murdochs are going to sell it to him, but he could try. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think if you. Well, I don't know. On the one hand, I think if you take it away from them, they'll just build another one. But on the other hand, with their, I don't know. their aging demographic, probably most of them couldn't make the transition. You know, it's like mm-hmm. they wouldn't all find the new spot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I think there there are good ways that he could be, yeah, using his influence in a different way. I think so. Yeah. Make sure my make sure my. Uh, Apple Watch is plugged in for the morning. Need to use it as an alarm clock here. <laughs> How is having an Apple Watch? Uh, a little bit underwhelming. I really? don't know. I thought there'd be like, like more to it. Hmm. It's about fifty percent right now. I I basically use it for a heart heartbeat monitor and uh. morning alarm clock. That's all I've really figured out how to do with it. And I don't really wear it during the day because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not used to wearing watches really these days. Mm-hmm. And Same plus, here. like, it's hard to keep it under. It's hard to keep it under my suit. I mean, button-up shirt, sleeve. Mm. And so then I feel like I'm always showing off or something. Like I'm showing <laughs> off my Apple Watch or something. Like it's peeking out under my sleeve and everything. I'm like, yeah, just leave it at home. That's what I do now. Weird flex, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, I just keep it charging at home all day until I need it at night. But these days I've had three days off, so I haven't been charging it. Damn, Jonathan, flexing on him with your Apple Watch. Yeah, yeah, it's black rubber. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kept it stock. I, I didn't. I haven't upgraded my band yet. Mm. There's like all kinds of like. You know, all the bands, the official Apple bands are like $68 or something each or something. It's like, you know, Mm. you can get, you know, fabric ones or (laughs) this is like when when rappers talk about their plain Jane rollies. They don't they don't want any any extras. Just just the standard. (laughs) Huh. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what a Rolly is. Uh, Rolex. Oh, okay. Yeah. Meaning they didn't put like any diamonds in it or whatever, because I guess it hurts the resale value. Huh. As I, I don't have, a, I don't, I don't even own a watch anymore, but that's what I understand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, as the owner of an Apple Watch, I can certainly empathize with these rappers these days. Clearly. As you mentioned. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> In so, in so many I ways. I similarly also have a flex <laughs> on my wrist. So I can understand you. <laughs> I also like did not put diamonds on my Apple Watch either. It's like we're the same. Great minds think alike. I know, right? So relatable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. The people's watch. Mm-hmm. All right. Hold on. Let me, I, hold on. I got to, one second, one second. Somebody sent me a message I got to respond to. It's one of my students. I got to see her tomorrow, but. Mm. She's messaged me late. Hold on one second. She may message me again. Sorry. One of my longtime one-on-one students is she's taking a different class 
mm. this month or something. And so she has to cancel her class all of a sudden or reschedule. She wants to reschedule for Saturday or something. It's a little bit complicated right now. Mm. <clears throat> but, um, yeah. Okay. We got to keep going, though. We got a lot of stuff to cover still. <laughs> um, Callista from Minneapolis writes this. Oh. Leading the world in resolving the climate crisis will be a multi-decade project, spanning far beyond even a two-term presidency. If you are elected president, how would you ensure that there is secure leadership and bipartisan support to continue this project? Congresswoman Gabbard. This is an issue that impacts all of us as Americans and people all over the world. This is not a Democrat issue or Republican issue. This is about the environmental threats that each and every one of us face. These are the kinds of conversations that we're having in our town hall meetings and house parties in different parts of the country where we have Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians and Independents coming together saying, hey, we are all concerned about making sure that we have clean water to drink for our families, that we have clean air to breathe, that we're able to raise our kids in a community that's safe. It is the hyper-partisanship in Washington, unfortunately, that has created this gridlock that has stood in the way of the kinds of progress that I would bring about, bring about as president. Transitioning our country off of fossil fuels and ending the nearly $30 billion in subsidies that we as taxpayers are currently giving to the fossil fuel industry, instead investing in a green renewable energy economy that leads us into the 21st century with good paying jobs, a sustainable economy, investing in infrastructure and transitioning our agriculture that is a great contributor to the environmental threats we face towards an agriculture system that focuses on local and regional production of food, healthy food that will actually feed the health and well-being of our people, leading as a, as a leader in the world to make the global change necessary to address Thank these you, threats. Thank you, Congresswoman. I want to bring in Mr. Steyer on this. You've made climate change a central point of your political career to this issue of making change, changes that last, making changes that are permanent. Could you address that, sir? Rachel, I'm the only person on this stage who will say that climate is the number one priority for me. Vice President Biden won't say it. <laughs> Senator Warren won't say it. It's a state of emergency, and I would declare a state of emergency on day one. I would use the emergency powers of the presidency. I know that we have to do this. I've spent a decade fighting and beating oil companies stopping pipelines, stopping fossil fuel plants, ensuring clean energy across the country. I know that we have to do this. I also know that we can do this. I would make this the number one priority of my foreign policy as well. We can do this and create literally millions of good paying union jobs across this country. I would make sure that my climate policy was led by environmental justice, and members of the communities where this society has chosen to put our air and water pollution, which are low-income black and brown communities. And when we ask, how are we gonna pull this country together? How about this? We take on the biggest challenge in history, we save the world, and we do it together. Do you think that would pull America together? I do. Quickly, Vice President Biden, you were name-checked there. I'd like to give you a chance yeah, to respond. Yeah, I was. I, uh, I, I think it is the existential threat to humanity. It's the number one issue. And I might add, I, I don't really need kind of a, a lecture from, this, from my friend. Uh, while uh, I was passing the first uh, climate change bill and that 
Flutterfax said was a game changer, while I managed the uh, $90 billion uh, recovery plan, investing more money in infrastructure that related to clean energy than any time we've ever done it. Uh, my friend was uh, um, uh, producing more coal mines and produced more coal around the world, according to the press, than all of Great Britain producers. Now, he's, I, I, I welcome him back into the fold here. And he's been there for a long while. But the idea that we talk about where we started and how we are, let's get this straight. I think it is the existential threat of, of all time. Can, can Thank I respond you, Mr. To Vice that, President. Rachel? You may respond, Mr. Steyer. Look, I came to the conclusion over 10 years ago that climate was the absolute <laughs> problem of our society and was the unintended consequence of our whole country being based on fossil fuels. Everybody in this room has lived in an economy based on fossil fuels, and we all have to come to the same conclusion that I came to over a decade ago. If we're waiting for Congress to pass one of the bills, and I know everybody on this stage cares about this, but Congress has never passed an important climate bill ever. This is a problem which continues to get worse. That's why I'm saying it's a state of emergency. That's why I'm saying it's priority one. If it isn't priority one, it's not going to get done. And this is something where we absolutely have to address it up front. We have to make it the most important thing. And we can use it to rebuild and reimagine what the United States is. We can be the moral leaders of the world again while we clean up our air and water and create millions of good-paying jobs. Senator Sanders, I'm going to ask you to jump in I was in also Tom, named uh, in that. Tom, you stated... You were. You, you <laughs> talked about the need to make climate change a national emergency. I've introduced legislation to just do that. Now, I disagree with the thrust of the original question. Because your question has said, what are we going to do in decades? We don't have decades. What the scientists are telling us, we don't get our act together within the next eight or nine years. We're talking about cities all over the world, major cities going underwater. We're talking about increased drought, talking about increased extreme weather disturbances. The United Nations is telling us that in the years to come, there are gonna be hundreds of millions of climate refugees causing national security issues all over the world. What we have got to do tonight and I will do as president, is to tell the fossil fuel industry that their short-term profits are not more important than the future of this planet. And by the way, the fossil fuel industry is probably criminally liable because they have lied and lied and lied when they had the evidence that their carbon products were destroying the planet, and maybe we should think about prosecuting them as Thank well. Thank you, Senator Sanders. Climate crisis. Okay, Gabbard made her statement about Democrat and Republican issue. Um, Steyer says climate's a number one priority. Declare state of emergency on day one. Having a climate foreign policy. It all sounds pretty good. Like again, Steyer's a rich guy who's in there because he's rich and everything, basically. But like, I can't find a lot to argue with him on what he says. He said what he says sounds good. So. Mm-hmm. And he, he was for impeachment way before anyone else. I think that was his, like, that was the way I knew who he was first, is that he was mm -hmm. out there trying to push for that, so. Smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. All right. Biden says, I was passing climate leg legislation was when Steyer was still in coal. Mm. Okay. Fern. 
<laughs> All right. Sanders says prosecute prosecute the fossil fuel industry. Interesting. Okay. Consequences. All right. Mm-hmm. Then they jump to North Korea. President Trump has dramatically changed America's approach to our adversaries by holding summits with Kim Jong-un, getting out of the Iran (laughs) nuclear deal, and at times embracing Vladimir Putin and other strongmen. So let's talk about what kind of commander-in-chief you would be. Senator Harris, North Korea is now threatening to cancel any future summits if President Trump does not make concessions on nuclear weapons. If you were commander-in-chief, would you make concessions to Kim Jong-un in order to keep those talks going? With all due deference to the fact that this is a presidential debate, Donald Trump got punked. (laughs) He was born, he has conducted foreign policy since day one, born out of a very fragile ego that fails to understand that one of the most important responsibilities of the commander in chief is to concern herself with the security of our nation and homeland and to do it in a way that understands that part of the strength of who we are as a nation and therefore an extension of our ability to be secure is not only that we have a vibrant military, but that when we walk in any room around the globe, we are respected because we keep to our word, we are consistent, we speak truth, and we are loyal. What Donald Trump has done, from pulling out of the Paris Agreement to pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, to consistently turning a back on people who have stood with us in difficult times, including most recently the Kurds, points out that Donald Trump is the greatest threat to the national security of our nation at this moment. But would you make concessions to North Korea? To not keep at, not at this point. There are no concessions to be made. They, they're, they're, he has traded a photo op for nothing. He has abandoned well, the, by, by, by shutting down the operations with South Korea for the last year and a half. So those operations which should be, and those exercises which should be active, because they are in our best national security, the relationship that we have with Japan, he has in every way compromised our ability to have any influence on slowing down or at least having a check and balance on North Korea's nuclear program. Thank you, Senator. Mr. Mr. Vice President, President Trump inherited the North Korea problem from past presidents over decades. What would a President Biden do that President Obama didn't do in eight years? Well, first of all, I'd go back and making sure we had the alliances we had before he became president. He has absolutely ostracized us from South Korea. He has given North Korea everything they wanted, creating the legitimacy by having a meeting with Kim Jong-un, who's a thug, although he points out that I'm a rabid dog need to be beaten with a stick. Um, recently was his comment. His well, other comment. than that, you like him. Other than that, I like him. And, <laughs> and uniting Japan and Australia and being a Pacific power and putting pressure on China in order to be, for them to make sure that it is a non, it is a nuclear-free peninsula. And the way we do that is we make clear to China, which I have done personally with, with, uh, with uh, the president of China, and that is we're going to move up our defenses. We're going to continue to make sure we increase our relationship with South Korea. And if they view that as a threat, it's an easy thing to respond to. They, in fact, can, in fact, put pressure on North Korea. But the fact is that we're in a position where he has done this across the world. He's embraced thugs. Look what Putin is doing in Europe. Putin is 
His whole effort is to break up NATO, to increase his power. Look what he's done to it. And so this guy has no idea what he's doing. He has no notion how to go about it. And we need a commander in chief. When he stands, everybody knows what he or she Thank is talking. Thank you, about. Mr. Vice President. Harris said Trump got punked. He has a fragile ego in foreign policy, which is all true. Uh, Biden also correctly points out Trump has ostracized us from South Korea, given North Korea legitimacy. Mm. And he says, although <laughs> he says Kim Jong Un points out that I'm a rabid dog that needs to be beaten with a stick. <laughs> and Bernie Sanders said, other than that, you like him. And Biden's <laughs> like, other than that, yeah, I like him. <laughs> it's kind of a funny moment between them. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> yeah, so. But, yeah, th these are both things that I've said. Like, I mean, like, you know, yeah, Donald Trump has been punked by North Korea. He, he thought he was going to get something special that no previous president was going to get from North Korea. And at the end of the day, he got a lot of hot air, just like every other president has always gotten, and, mm -hmm. you know, no real change of behavior. So, yeah. Um, and yeah. And in the meantime, like, you know, real, probably real damage has been done to the South Korea, America Alliance. Well, because... I was going to bring this up with you before, but didn't they sign a, a agreement with China that I saw? It was pretty crazy. Like, like a protection agreement or something South Korea did a couple weeks ago. Huh. Did you see I that? I didn't. I actually I didn't catch anything about that. I don't know. Maybe yeah, it was wild. Yeah, media, I don't but... know. Let me look it up here. But North Korea, China. Okay. It was like a defense agreement. I didn't really. I just read the headline. I was like, whoa, that seems big. Huh. Man, yeah, I've been, China, I've been sleeping. Like, yeah, this is in November. November eighteenth, China signs defense agreement with South Korea. Huh. Develop their security to... ties. <laughs> okay. I'll mm -hmm. have to read into that some more. It sounds like I've been sleeping on my duties over here. Or you've just been, they've blocked all the news of this in South Korea, too. That's possible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Apparently when this know. debate was playing, and uh, or maybe it was the next month's debate, uh, was playing in China. They just like went to a blank screen when they were talking about China stealing intellectual property or something, or human rights or something <laughs> not favorable to the Xi government. Hmm. Just like yeah. this part of the podcast will probably be <laughs> deleted <laughs> in China. Yeah. If people, people can even get it there. So. Well, whether or not I, I missed that detail that they've actually signed something or not, I've already talked about, I'm sure, on this podcast before, mm -hmm. the fact that because America has not been shown to be a reliable ally, you know, mm -hmm. and because, you know, because America has been like kind of, well, I mean, with with things like what happened in Iraq or Syria with the Kurds and stuff like that, you know, a lot of Koreans had pause at that moment, like, whoa, they're their allies and they just abandoned them and shit and they're getting killed now. Holy shit, that could be us. But on the other hand, you know, <clears throat> there's the idea that, you know, America likes fighting China by itself, but it likes to have South Korea there to help. And so actually maybe South Korea doesn't have so much conflict with China necessarily outside of the fact that America wants them to. And so there's a kind of this paranoia that, you know, and in some quarters in South Korea, there's the idea that the entire Korean war is basically America's fault, which is totally mm. insane, I think. How is that? Well, they think that, you know, America wanted to fight Russia and China, and so they made Korea fight North Korea over it, mm. which ignores the fact that um, 
you know, North Korea invaded South Korea. Right. America didn't cause that, and America yeah. wasn't prepared for it at the time. It doesn't and mean America, we weren't. Yeah, it doesn't mean we weren't fighting a proxy war, but it doesn't also mean that we started it either. So. Yeah, yeah, like, you know. <laughs> By the way, Korea, we dropped a bomb on Japan partially to warn Russia to stop <laughs> where they stopped, you know. So that's that's why you're all not North Korea right now. Okay? Right. So it's like history is complicated, down. but you still have to, Calm like, down. you know, know what happened somewhat. So, <laughs> uh, but but anyway, so, yeah, like I've I've been saying for years, like, you know, with Donald Trump in there, things are going to get worse with North Korea. And with South Korea, I mean, mm-hmm. I said, you know, like for a while, the the I think the left wing groups in South Korea thought Donald Trump was great because they could get away with murder over here with the North and stuff negotiating. And Donald mm-hmm. Trump thought it was all great, whereas previous responsible American presidents probably would not have let the left wing and Korean government get away with as much mm-hmm. rightly or wrongly. You know, mm-hmm. there's pros and cons to either side of it, but. But the thing is, you know, the Moon government has had several years with North Korea now, and uh, Donald Trump has had several years with North Korea now, and what's been the result? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing. You, they've mm-hmm. been playing you around for another couple of years, trying to get concessions, trying to get more aid and allowances and suspension of uh, military training deals and stuff like this. Oh, it's, you know, I don't know, whatever. So anyways, that was that was North Korea. I think the next topic was ending the war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sanders said, bring troops home, possible to negotiate with the Taliban, working with the international community. Two more U.S. soldiers were killed today in Afghanistan, tragically, in America's longest war. Senator Sanders You've long said you want to bring the troops back home from Afghanistan. Would you cut a deal with the Taliban to end the war, even if it means the collapse of the Afghan government that America has long supported? Well, let me just say this. Um, One of the big differences between the vice president and myself is he supported the terrible war in Iraq, and I helped lead the opposition against it. And not only that, I voted against the very first Gulf War as well. And I think we need a foreign policy which understands who our enemies are, that we don't have to spend ten more than more money on the military than the next ten nations combined. But to answer your question, yeah, I think it is time after spending many trillions of dollars on these endless wars, which have resulted in more dislocation and mass migrations and pain in that region, it is time to bring our troops home. But unlike Trump, I will not do it through a tweet at 3 o'clock in the morning. I will do it working with the international community. And if it's necessary to negotiate with the Taliban, of course, we will do that. But at the end of the day, we have to rethink the entire war on terror, which has caused so much pain and lost so many lives, not only for our own men and women in the armed forces, but for people in that region as well. Um, next one. First phone call with Putin. Andrew Yang says, I'm sorry I beat your guy. 
China, Hong Kong. This is this is where they're getting into like the the just the the speed round, you know, the lightning <laughs> round of issues. China, Hong Kong. Cory Booker. Well, first of all, this is a president who seems to want to go up against China uh, in a trade war by pulling away from our allies and, in fact, attacking them as well. We use a national security waiver to put tariffs on Canada. And so at the very time that China is breaking international rules, is practicing unfair practices, stealing technology, forcing technology transfer and violating human rights, this nation is pulling away from critical allies we would need to show strength against China. There's a larger battle going on on the planet Earth right now between totalitarian dictatorial countries and free democracies. And we see the scorecard under this president not looking so good, with China actually shifting more towards an authoritarian government, with its leader now getting rid of even uh, uh, his t getting rid of term limits. And so I believe we need a much stronger policy, one that's not led, as President Trump seems to want to do, in a transactional way, but one that's led by American values. So, yes, we will call China out for its human rights violations. But not only that, we will stop engaging in things that violate American rights. Because it is a human rights violation when people at our border, children are thrown in cages. It's a human rights violation without coming to the United States Congress for an authorization to the use of military force for us to refuel Saudi jets to bomb Yemeni children. It is about time that this country is led by someone who will say the values of freedom and democracy are what we are going to lead with and begin to check China, check Putin and the other folks that are trying to undermine American values and democratic values around the globe. Thank you, Senator. Andrew. <laughs> lead with our values. Treat allies like allies. Enemies like enemies again. Saudi Arabia. Joe Biden. Punish Saudi leaders. No more weapon sales. Make them a pariah. UN condemnation of China over Uyghurs, Hong Kong. Uh, speak up about violations of human rights. Okay. Honestly, I don't disagree with a lot of what he says there. Mm -hmm. uh, Klobuchar, we need a new foreign policy, reasserting American values. Okay. Sanders, bring Iran and Saudi Arabia in a room. Same with Israel, Palestine. Okay. Many states, including right here where we are tonight in Georgia, have passed laws that severely limit or outright ban abortion. Right now, Roe versus Wade protects a woman's right to abortion nationwide. But if Roe gets overturned and abortion access disappears in some states, would you intervene as president to try to bring that access back? Senator Klobuchar. Well, of course. Uh, we should codify Roe v. Wade into law. That is what we should do. And this president indicated early on what he was going to do, and he's done it. Uh, when he was running for office, he literally said he, women should go to jail. Then he dialed it back and said doctors should go to jail. So no surprise that we're seeing these kinds of laws in Georgia and Alabama, where his allies are passing these bills. And what we have to remember is that the people are with us. And I predict this will be a big election in issue in the general election. And I just can't wait to stand across from Donald Trump and say this to him. You know what? The people are with us. Over 70% of the people support Roe v. Wade. Over 90% of the people support funding for Planned Parenthood and making sure that women can get the health care they need. He is off the track on this, and he will hear from the women of America, and this is how we're going to win this election. Just this weekend, Louisiana re-elected a Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards. 
He has signed one of the country's toughest laws restricting abortion. Is there room in the Democratic Party for someone like him, someone who can win in a deep red state, but who does not support abortion rights? Senator Warren. Look, I believe that abortion rights are human rights. I believe that they are also economic rights. And protecting the right of a woman to be able to make decisions about her own body is fundamentally what we do and what we stand for as a Democratic Party. Understand this. When someone makes abortion illegal in America, rich women will still get abortions. It's just going to fall hard on poor women. It's going to fall hard on girls, women who don't even know that they're pregnant because they have been molested by an uncle. I want to be in America where everybody has a chance. And I know it can be a hard decision for people, but here's the thing. When it comes down to that decision, a woman should be able to call on her mother. She should be able to call on her partner. She be, should be able to call on her priest or her rabbi. But the one entity that should not be in the middle of that decision is the government. Senator Warren, I need to push you on this a little bit for a specific answer to the question. Governor John Bell Edwards in Louisiana is an anti-abortion governor who has signed abortion restrictions in Louisiana. Is there room for him in the Democratic Party with those politics? I have made clear what I think the Democratic Party stands for. I'm not here to try to drive anyone out of this party. I'm not here to try to build fences. But I am here to say this is what I will fight for as President of the United States. The women of America can count Senator on Senator Warren, thank you. Senator Sanders, I'll give you 30 seconds. Uh, Amy mentioned that women feel strongly on it. Well, let me just tell you that if there's ever a time in American history where the men of this country must stand with the women, this is the moment. And I get very tired, very tired of hearing the hypocrisy from conservatives who say, get the government off our backs. We want small government. Well, if you want to get the government out of the backs of the American people, that understand that it is women who control their own bodies, not politicians. This Senator is a voting Sanders, issue. thank you. This is a voting issue. Uh, Senator Booker. This is a voting issue. This is a voter suppression issue. Right here in this great state of Georgia, it was the voter suppression, particularly of African-American communities, that prevented us from having a Governor Stacey Abrams right now. Yes. And that is, when you have undemocratic means, when you suppress people's votes to get elected, those are the very people you're going to come af after when, you, when you're in office. And this bill, opposed by over 70 percent, the heartbeat bill here, proposed by over 70 percent of Georgians, is the result from voter suppression. This gets back to the issue about making sure we are fighting every single day that whoever is the nominee, they can overcome the attempts to suppress the votes, particularly of low-income and minority voters, and particularly in the black community Senator, like we saw here in Georgia. Senator Booker, thank you. And to that point, individual states, as you all know, set their own rules for voting and for elections. Depending on where you live, you may be required to show ID or not. You might have a lot of days for early voting, or fewer days, or none. You might have a polling place in walking distance, or you might have to drive or take a bus to the edge of town. With that in mind, our next question comes from Jenna in Maryland, who asks, what will you do at the executive level to ensure that every American has equal access to the ballot box? Mayor Buttigieg. Well, uh, we need federal leadership to establish voting rights for the 21st century, because this affects every other issue 
that we care about. Now, the House of Representatives passed a, a pro-democracy, anti-corruption bill, which is one of many good bills to die in Mitch McConnell's hands in the United States Senate. We know that with the White House in the right hands, we can make, for example, election days a federal holiday. We can use carrots and sticks to induce states to do the right thing with automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, making it easier for people to vote and, in particular, recognizing that we cannot allow the kind of racially motivated or partisan voter suppression or gerrymandering that often dictates the outcome of election before the voting even begins. Right now, we have politicians picking out their voters rather than the other way around. That compounding with what is being done to restrict the right to vote means that our democracy is not worthy of the name. I just, I and wanna, while these process this... issues are not always fashionable, we must act to reform our democracy itself, including when it comes to choosing our presidency, this like we do in every other just, election, giving out, it to the person who got the most votes. I agree Forgive with me, Mr. what Mayor. the mayor has just said, but this is a good example uh, where he has said the right words, but I actually have the experience and of leading 11 of the bills that are in that House passed bill you just referred to. Um, and I think this kind of experience matters. I have been devoted to this from the time that I've got to the Senate. And I think having that experience, knowing how you can get things done, leading the bills to take the social media companies to task, a bipartisan bill to say, yeah, you have to say where these ads come from and how they're paid for, and stop the unbelievable practice where we still have 11 states that don't have pay backup paper ballots. That is my bipartisan bill, and I am so class close to getting it done. And the way I get it done is if I'm president. But just like I have won statewide, and Mayor, I have all appreciation for your good work as a local official, and you did not when you tried, I also have actually done this work. I think experience should matter. Mayor Buttigieg, I'll let you respond to that. So first of all, Washington experience is not the only experience that matters. There's more than 100 years of Washington experience on this stage, and where are we right now as a country? I have the experience of bringing people together to get something done. I have the experience of being commanded into a war zone by an American president. I have the experience of knowing what is at stake as the decisions made in those big white buildings come into our lives, our homes, our families, our workplaces, and our marriages. And I would submit that this is the kind of experience we need, not just to go to Washington, but to change it before it is too late. Mr. Mayor, thank you. Congresswoman Gabbard, on the original here. question of voting thank rights, you. please. I mean, voting rights are essential for our democracy. Securing our elections is essential for our democracy. I've introduced legislation called the Securing America Elections Act that mandates paper ballots to make sure that every single voter's voice is heard. But I want to get back to Pete Buttigieg and his comment about experience. Uh, I, Pete, you'll agree that uh, the service that we both have provided to our country as veterans by itself does not qualify us to serve as Commander-in-Chief. I think the most recent example of your inexperience in national security and foreign policy came from your recent careless statement about how you as president would be willing to send our troops to Mexico to fight the cartels. As commander-in-chief, leader of our armed forces, I bring extensive experience serving for seven years in Congress on the Foreign Affairs Committee, 
on the Armed Services Committee, on the Homeland Security Committee, meeting with leaders of, of uh, countries around the world, working with military commanders of different commands, uh, dealing with high-level national security briefings, understanding what's necessary, the preparation that I've gotten to walk in on day one to serve as Commander-in-Chief. Congresswoman, thank so you. I've Mr. Merrill, I'll allow you to that. respond. I know that it's par for the course in Washington to take remarks mm -hmm. out of context, but that is outlandish even by the standards of today's politics. Are, are you saying that you didn't say that? I was talking about U.S.-Mexico cooperation. We've been doing security cooperation with Mexico for years with law enforcement cooperation and a military relationship that could continue to be developed with training relationships, for example. Do you seriously think anybody on this stage is proposing invading Mexico? That, that's not I'm what talking I said. About that's building not what I said. Up, I'm talking about building up alliances. <laughs> and if your question is about experience, let's also talk about judgment. One of the foreign leaders you mentioned meeting was Bashar al-Assad. I have, in my experience, such as it is, whether you think it counts or not, since it wasn't accumulated in Washington, enough judgment that I would not have sat down with a murderous dictator like that. Congresswoman Gabbard, let me allow you to respond. Thank you. You were asked directly whether you would send our troops to Mexico to fight cartels, and your answer was yes. The fact checkers can check this out. No. But your point about judgment is absolutely correct. Our Commander-in-Chief does need to have good judgment. And what you've just pointed out is that you would lack the courage to meet with both adversaries and friends to ensure the peace and national security of our nation. I take the example of those leaders who have come before us, leaders like JFK, who met with Khrushchev, like Roosevelt, who met with Stalin, like, Donald like Trump, Reagan, who met like Reagan, who met and worked with Gorbachev. These issues of national security are incredibly important. I will meet with and do what is necessary to make sure that no more of our brothers and sisters in uniform are needlessly sent into harm's way fighting regime change wars that undermine our national security. I'll bring real leadership and experience to the White House. Oh, you, I've got to respond Senator to Sanders, I'm going to have a original point. The American people understand that the political system we have today is corrupt. And it is not just voter suppression, which costs the Democratic Party a governorship here in this state, not just denying black people and people of color the right to vote, but we also have a system through Citizens United which allows billionaires to buy elections. So what we need to do, simple and straightforward, in every state in this country through the federal government, if you are 18, you have a right to vote. End of discussion. We have to overturn Citizens United. We need to move toward public funding of elections. On this last point, Mr. Steyer. Well, I agree with exactly what Bernie said, but I want to talk about how we're going to win in 2020. I don't mean to change the subject, but I think it's sort of important that the Democratic Party not only beat Donald Trump, in 2020, but have a sweeping victory across the country. And what that's going to mean is turnout. In the United States of America, the Democratic Party keeps talking about trying to persuade a few people who are Republicans to like us, when up to half the people don't vote at all because they think neither party tells the truth, no one deals with my issues, the system is broken, why would we vote? 
But what we've found at Next Gen America is that is the start of a conversation about why votes are so important. And if you look at 2018 and flipping the House, what really happened was Democrats, Democratic voting went up by three quarters. In the 38 congressional districts where Next Gen America was turning out young people, the turnout went up by more than 100 percent, more you, than Mr. double. Sir. So for us to win, for everybody on this stage, for whoever's the candidate to have a Senate that's Democratic, for us to have the sweeping victory that we absolutely Sire, are going you. to have next year, it's a turnout question. We're going to have to tell the truth Sir. and we're going to have to organize across this country. I don't think we can get Iran and Saudi Arabia in a room. <laughs> Probably not. I'm going to guess no. <laughs> Let alone Israel Palestine, although, you know, I applaud the uh the uh the intent, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um next question. Should more than one percent of Americans serve in the military? Senator Warren, only about one percent of Americans serve in the United States military right now. Should that number be higher? Yes, I think it should be. You know, all three of my brothers served in the military. One was career military. Uh, uh, the other two also served. I think it's an important part of who we are as Americans. And I think the notion of shared service is important. Um, it's how we help bring our nation together. It's how people learn to work together from different regions, people who grew up differently. It's also about how families share that sacrifice. I remember what it was like when I was a little girl. My brother, my oldest brother, who served five and a half years off and on in combat in Vietnam, and what it was like for my mother every day to check the mailbox. Uh, had we heard from Don Reed? How's he doing? And if there was a letter, she was brighter than the day. And if it wasn't, she'd say, well, maybe tomorrow. This is about building for our entire nation. And I believe we should do that. I also believe we should have other service opportunities in this country. So for example, what I want to do is for our federal lands, I want to bring in 10,000 people who want to be able to serve in our federal lands to be able to help rebuild our national forests and national parks as a way to express both their public service and their commitment to fighting back against climate change. We can do this as a nation. Elizabeth Warren, yes, my three brothers served, but there could be other service opportunities. <sighs> I wish, like, I wish more, I wish Elizabeth Warren would stop talking about how all the men in her family served in the military, but she didn't because she's the mm -hmm. princess or whatever. I Like, I don't know. I'm just tired of it. And it's like, and yes, because, yes, I'm glad that your three year older brothers all served in the military, Elizabeth Warren, but please stop telling us that every person in America, every young person needs to serve in the military now, you know, for a lot of people, you know, you know, service is not a job, right? And if you make it universal required service, it's not going to be a job that pays money. But so uh, service, it... service guarantees citizenship. I thought you knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the, yeah. the world. I don't know. This, <laughs> The, I, how can I respond to the <laughs> to the Starship Troopers? Yeah. Well, I I do think it's interesting that people always bring that up, and I feel like most of the time it's by people that never served themselves, but they just think it's a nice idea for like younger people. 
Like, mm. I feel like that's a constant theme of people that bring that up. I don't think it's a terrible idea, but, like, man, it's like, how would that even work? Like, what would you do? Like, unless you're going to do, like, some sort of new WPA, like, in the 30s, where you have people building infrastructure or something, I don't know that we need everybody to be, like, in Israel, like, you know, where everyone just serves compulsorily. Yeah. I don't or South Korea, where all the men have to. Right, exactly. But, but the thing is, like, it's, I mean, it's basically for free. Like, I think, you know, South Korean men get, like, $70 a month salary, quote-unquote salary, for serving in the military, which they have to do, basically. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, if you're, if you, I mean, as much as Elizabeth Warren seems to have her head on straight about a lot of socioeconomic issues, mm-hmm. she doesn't seem to have her head straight on this, which is that, if you're a poor person just getting out of high school, you may have to hustle your way into a job right away. Mm-hmm. And you don't got time to go off and serve the military for two years for free or some shit because Elizabeth Warren wants you to. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you may need to do something for money. And when this is a required thing that everybody has to go through equally, you know, it's required. Mm-hmm. You know, soldier going into the military is a career in America because it's a volunteer military. Mm-hmm. When everybody has to join the military, they don't pay you shit because they don't have to because you mm-hmm. have to be there. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's how it is in South Korea. Like they don't pay soldiers shit. So, you know, so I I, I maybe she's got a plan for that or whatever, but I'd like to hear, you know, I think it's a dumb idea. I think it's a, a way for her to look tough on the military when she, you know, hasn't personally served, although she never ceases to point out that her family has. Okay, whatever. Um, we've probably spent more time on this than we should. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was something I thought about when I heard her say that too. You know, it's definitely an issue. Yeah, and I I get it. Like, I mean, yes, it would be nice if everybody in America, you know, contributed to the nation in some way, whether that's you know building infrastructure or serving the nation's parks or something. But mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, making it a requirement just really ignores a lot of people's individual circumstances i think and i think it overestimates maybe i don't know it overestimates something maybe the need or you know i don't know it's it's a weird situation mm-hmm. i don't know it might be a good way to meet singles or something when you're young. <laughs> that's true how else are you gonna meet people other than like college <laughs> and stuff you know yeah so. okay this is kind of yeah well you know okay Hold that thought, Warren. Let's talk more. <laughs> okay. You, you forgot about the dating possibilities, Chuck. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Everybody looks good in uniform. <laughs> that could be a tagline for this. I love it. Forget, okay. forget Tinder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wipe right on the military. <laughs> yeah. Only Swipe left. you can Which stop forward fires. Yeah. Smokey Bear. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah um let's see the next t- topic was cut military spending in president trump's first two years in office the pentagon budget ballooned mayor mayor Buttigieg, would you cut military spending or would you keep it on the same upward trajectory we need to reprioritize our budget as a whole and our military spending in particular. It's not just how much, although we certainly need to look at the runaway growth in military spending. It's also where. 
Right now, we are spending a fraction of the intention and resources on things like the artificial intelligence research that China is doing right now. If we fall behind on artificial intelligence, the most expensive ships that the United States is building just turn into bigger targets. We do not have a 21st century security strategy coming from this president. After all, he's relying on 17th century security technologies like a moat full of alligators or a big wall. There is no concept of strategic planning for how civilian, diplomatic, and military security work needs to take place for the future. Can I, can I respond? Mayor Buttigieg, thank you. Can I respond on this? Coming up, we will have much more from the candidates. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. Just a moment. Stay with us. Uh, Buttigieg said, spend smarter on tech. Okay, have high-tech military instead of spending the way we do. Okay. Next topic, race in America. FBI Director Christopher Wray recently told Congress, quote, the majority of the domestic terrorism cases that we've investigated are motivated by white supremacist violence. Congresswoman Gabbard, to you. As president, would you direct the federal government to do something about this problem that it is not currently doing? Yes, I would. We have seen for far too long the kind of racial bigotry, divisiveness, and attacks that have unfortunately taken the lives of our fellow Americans. Leadership starts at the top. It's important that we set the record straight and correct the racial injustices that exist in a very institutional way in our country, uh, beginning with things that have to do with our criminal justice system, where predominantly the failed war on drugs that has been continuing to be waged in this country has disproportionately impacted people of color and people in poverty. This is something that I'll do as president and commander in chief is to overhaul our criminal justice system, working in a bipartisan way to do things like end the failed war on drugs, end the money bail system, enact the kinds of prison reforms and sentencing reforms that we need to see that will correct the failures of the past. The most important thing here is that we recognize that we have to treat each other with respect all of us as fellow Americans, regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, gender, orientation, and our politics. That kind of leadership starts at the top. As president, I will usher in a 21st century uh, White House that actually represents the interests of all Americans, first and foremost. Congresswoman Gabbard, thank you for that. Mr. Yang, what would you do about the issue of white supremacist violence? Well, first, we have to designate white supremacist terrorism as domestic terrorism so that the Department of Justice can properly measure it. I talked to an anti-hate activist named Christian Picciolini, who told me about how he was radicalized uh, over a 10-year period. He said he was a lonely 14-year-old and that he was reached out to by a hate group, and he wound up joining it for a decade. Now he's out, and he's helping uh, convert people out of those hate groups and back into the rest of society. But what he told me was that if anyone had reached out to him when he was that hurt, broken 14-year-old boy, he would have gone with them. He said if it had been a coach, I would have gone with him. If it had been a mentor or teacher, I would have gone with them. But instead, it was a hate group. So what we have to do is we have to get into the roots of our communities and create paths forward for men in particular who right now are falling through the cracks. And when you look at gun violence in this country, 96 plus percent of the shooters we're talking about are young boys and young men. We have to, as a country, start 
finding ways to turn our boys into healthy, strong young men who do not hate, but instead feel like they have paths forward in today's economy. Tulsi Gabbard says, in the war on drugs and the money bail system. I think I agree about, I mean, yeah, in the money bail system, yeah. I think that's a, I think it's a problem. I think the money bail system is ridiculous because if I ever committed a crime for anything, I can't imagine spending money on bail. I don't know where I would get the money. You know, Usually the know way it works would... is you come up with a percentage of it and then the bail bondsman bails you out and then they provide the other, what, 90% or whatever of it on the mm-hmm. assumption that you will show up for court, I guess. So. Okay. But it's still, it's still a lot. And there's basically a debtor's prison if you can't you can't pay basically so and that was the thing that like the doj found when they did that big report on ferguson is basically the entire uh county city government was funded by basically taxing people like billing people with these court fees and then locking you up if you don't pay the court (coughs) fees and it's like that's how they're basically funding their entire government it's just these basically just you know nickel and diming people to death on these things and you know people have a record and they can't get a job and they just fall further and further down so yeah it it seems bad and and plus the other thing is like whenever it's somebody you really want them to you know like i mean i know it's i from what i understand it's supposed to send a moral judgment like if you really are a psychopath or something they want to keep you in jail then they're going to set it so high that you probably can't reach it. But then sometimes still those people do reach it or like, you know, Mm -hmm. it'll be like, you know, some Saudi Arabian student who raped and murdered people or something while they were in college here in America. Oh, we're going to set their bail at a million dollars because they're a flight risk. Like motherfucker, do you know what a million dollars is to a Saudi? (laughs) (laughs) Next thing you know, Oh wow. They met the bail. Oh wow. They flew out of America. I guess we'll never (laughs) see him again. Oh my, who could have predicted yeah if i'm president no bail for saudis motherfuckers (laughs) that's my campaign promise okay if you're a saudi that's a crime in america you get no bail (laughs) that fits on a hat (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's the kind of of sloganeering the democrats need (laughs) yeah that's i mean it's yeah it's 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 you know people could call it a racist thing it's not racist it's like i'm sick of seeing these situations where these these things happen or whatever it seems like i don't know whatever yeah so um anyways continuing on race in america (laughs) um yang says designate white supremacy as domestic terrorism okay yes it seems like they're back 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 sliding on this a little bit with the stuff in the military and stuff these days mm-hmm. <clears throat> mm. the hashtag me too movement they went to biden okay this is one of my favorite moments of the debate <laughs> uh joe biden <laughs> says you'll have to drop the audio in there The Me Too movement has forced a cultural reckoning around the issue of sexual violence and harassment against women in America. Are there specific actions that you would take early in your administration to address this problem? Yes, and by the way, it's one of the reasons, the first thing I would do is make sure we pass the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization, which I wrote. The fact, I didn't write the reauthorization, I wrote the original act. The fact is that what happens now is that we, in fact, have to fundamentally change the culture, the culture of how women are treated. 
That's why, as vice president, when I asked the president I could start the, the movement on the college campuses to say, it's on us. It's everyone's responsibility. We do not spend nearly enough time dealing with — I was stunned when I did a virtual town meeting that told me 30,000 people were on the, on the call, young people between 15 and 25, and found out — I said, what do you need — what do you need to make you safer on college campuses and on your schools? You know what they said? Get men involved. Engage the rest of the community. And that's when we started this movement on the college campuses to fundamentally change the culture. No man has a right to raise a hand to a woman in anger other than in self-defense, and that rarely ever occurs. And so we have to just change the culture, period, and keep punching at it and punching at it and punching at it. It will be a big — no, I really mean it. it, it, make, it it's a gigantic issue, and we have to make it clear from the top, from the president on down, that we will not tolerate it. We will not tolerate this culture. No man has the right to raise a hand to a woman in anger other than in self-defense. And that's, that rarely ever occurs. And so we have to just change the culture, period, and keep punching at it. He I know. does the punching motion and punching at it and punching at it. And we'll be a big – no, I really mean it. The audience is laughing and Sanders and Harris are biting their lips. It's like, it's, it's just, Probably the wrong metaphor to use right there to make your point there, Joe Biden. <laughs> You really just got a whale on it. And once it has a black eye, you really know you've done something. <laughs> like... Yeah, somebody, I forget who it was. I don't know if it was Samantha B or like Saturday Night Live or somebody said like, like uh, we got to change the culture or something. And somebody said something like, what, what, what can you do once you've already told culture twice? <laughs> I, no, no, no. I, I'll tell you who it was. It was somebody. It was on the majority report, I think, and it was. Um, oh God, it was. Uh, it was the one of the producers in the background, I think, who said it. Mm. <laughs> so, what what can you tell culture once you've already told it twice, or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I like how he kept going, like he didn't understand why people were laughing. Like he's like, no, I, I mean it. <laughs> Like, yeah. No, we know you mean it. You're just you're saying it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Joe Biden is just a very like you know I don't know what the word is intuitive or kind of like a he he's a he's a person who has to feel the politics or something. And so when he he talks about domestic violence, that's about violence, and so he thinks about punching and punching, and so that gets into his language somehow. You know, it's like this kind of this, I don't I don't know. Maybe that's part of his process, but just to get in there and smell the hair of an issue. <laughs> yeah, he's he's kind of like a like a like a what do you call it? Uh, he's kind of a method politician, if you will. <laughs> that's good. That sounds like a good defense for if this like stuff about him like touching women never comes back to haunt him. Yeah, so. yeah. In order to understand women for the Me Too movement, I had to really feel what they were feeling. That meant I had to feel them sometimes, and uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah exactly all right let's 
Well, our next topic was outreach to African-American voters. Um, Senator Harris, this week you criticized Mayor Pete Buttigieg's outreach to African-American voters. You said, quote, the Democratic nominee has got to be someone who has the experience of connecting with all of who we are as the diversity of the American people, end quote. What exactly prompted you to say that, Senator Harris? Well, that was asked a question um, that related to a stock photograph um, that his campaign published. But listen, I think that the, it really speaks to a larger issue, and, I, and I'll speak to the larger issue. I, I believe that the, um, the mayor has um, made apologies for that. Um, the larger issue is that for too long, I think, candidates have taken for granted constituencies that have been the backbone of the Democratic Party and have overlooked those constituencies and um, have, you know, they show up when it's, you know, close to election time and show up in a black church um, and, and want to get the vote, but just haven't been there before. I mean, you know, the, the, there are plenty of people who applauded black women for the success of the 2018 election, applauded black women for the election of a senator from Alabama. Um, but, you know, at some point, folks get tired of just saying, oh, you know, thank me for showing up and, want, and, and say, well, show up for me. Because when black women, when black women are three to four times more likely to die in connection with childbirth in America, when the sons of black women will die because of gun violence more than any other cause of death, when black women make 61 cents on the dollar, as compared to all women who tragically make 80 cents on the dollar, the question has to be, where you been and what are you gonna do? And do you understand who the people are? And I'm running for president because I believe that we have to have leadership in this country who has worked with and have the experience of working with all folks. And we've got to recreate the Obama coalition to win. And that means about women, that's people of color, that's our LGBTQ community, that's working people, that's our labor unions. But that is how we are going to win this election, and Senator, I intend to win. Senator Harris, thank you. Mayor Buttigieg, your response to that? My response is I completely agree. And I welcome the challenge of connecting with black voters in America who don't yet know me. And before I share what's in my plans, let me talk about what's in my heart and why this is so important. As mayor of a city that is racially diverse and largely low income, for eight years I have lived and breathed the successes and struggles of a community where far too many people live with the consequences of racial inequity that has built up over centuries but been compounded by policies and decisions from within living memory. I care about this because my faith teaches me that salvation has to do with how I make myself useful to those who have been excluded, marginalized, and cast aside and oppressed in society. And I care about this because while I do not have the experience of ever having been discriminated against because of the color of my skin, I do have the experience of sometimes feeling like a stranger in my own country, turning on the news and seeing my own rights come up for debate, and seeing my rights expanded by a coalition of people like me and people not at all like me, working side by side, shoulder to shoulder, 
making it possible for me to be standing here wearing this wedding ring in a way that couldn't have happened two elections ago lets me know just how deep my obligation is to help those whose rights are on the line every day, even if they are nothing like me in their experience. Mayor Buttigieg, thank you very much. Senator Harris, quick response. Look, there's a lot at stake in this election. And I've said it many times, I think justice is on the ballot in 2020. And it's about economic justice, it's about justice for, for, for children, it's about justice for, for our teachers. I, I could go on down the list. And so the, the issue really is not what is the fight. The issue has to be how we're going to win. And to win, we have to build a coalition and rebuild the Obama coalition. I keep referring to that because that's the last time we won. And the way that that election looked and the, what that coalition looked like was it was about having a leader who had worked in many communities, knows those communities, and has the ability to bring people together. And everyone is going to have to be judged on their experience and therefore ability to bring folks together around our commonalities, of which I believe there are many. Thank you, Senator. Senator Warren, quickly. So I think it is really important that we actually talk about what we're willing to get in the fight for. And I just want to give one example around this. Senator Harris rightly raised the question of economic justice. Let me give a specific example, and that is student loan debt. Right now in America, in America African Americans are more likely to borrow money to go to college, borrow more money while they're in college, and have a harder time paying that debt off after they get out. Today in America, a new study came out 20 years out. Whites who borrowed money, 94% of them have paid off their student loan debt. 5% of African Americans have paid it off. I believe that means everyone on this stage should be embracing student loan debt forgiveness. It will help close the black-white wealth gap. Let's do something tangible and real to make change in this country. Senator Warren, thank you. Harris talked about, she brought up the Kenya photo. I think this is on Pete Buttigieg's website. Yeah. And she acknowledged that it had already been addressed. Um, she says, don't take black voters for granted, of course. Um, Buttigieg says, I agree. I welcome the challenge of connecting with black voters. Um, as a gay man, I know what it's like when my rights are on the ballot. Okay. I know I a lot of, some, yeah. yeah, go on. I heard some people like giving him some shit for that saying like, you know, it's not the same thing. You can't compare being gay to being black. And, mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. He's, you know, okay. He's trying something, right? Like, I mean, come on. Yeah. Whatever happened to intersexual in, intersectionality, woke people? Yeah, well, Come on, intersexuality, motherfucker. No, no, not that. No, I wasn't trying to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't know. It's uh, it's a complicated issue and stuff. And I've heard, you know, and you know, I've tried to talk to my mom about, like, you know, about the fact that because she, you know, God bless my mom, you know. <laughs> anywhere but Bernie but <laughs> so, so <laughs> she likes Warren but then she also likes Buttigieg because they're so alike uh but then she also likes Klobuchar <laughs> right so but like I was trying to tell her about like frankly with with both Warren and Buttigieg they just don't have any appeal with African-American voters and why is that and stuff and she said and so finally she got back to me with well you know I think there's a lot of homophobia in the African-American community and so they, they may not be accepting uh, Buttigieg. And I'm like, well, you know, actually, I think that's fair. I think that's true. And I've heard some people who I think should know better 
try to say that's not it at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm not so sure, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I'm not so, you know, I'm not totally so sure. I think like, I think it's an issue. It's it's an issue. Like, I mean, you know, let's keep it real. The African-American churches have been one of the you mm-hmm. know, unifying things historically. Also, one of the things that make sure that African-Americans vote mm-hmm. and, you know, and at the end of the day, they're churches. Right. Yep. And at the end of the day, I mean, like, you know, traditional notions of African-American and masculinity are what they are. Mm-hmm. You know, we all we all listen to rap music and stuff. So <laughs> we, we know. And, and God bless Frank Ocean. <laughs> but, you know, that's a pretty modern that's a pretty modern thing to come out here. So. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I, I also told my mom, yes, I think I agree with you. I think that's part of it. But I said, I also think this thing, whatever happened with his African-American um, police chief up there, who he helped get fired mm-hmm. in cahoots with a whole bunch of racist white cops, that's an issue, too. And my mom's like, well, I haven't heard of that. And it's like, well, OK, well, you know, go Google that and check that out. And we'll <laughs> talk about it next week and stuff. But, yeah. You know, I, it's not just one issue, but I'm just saying, like, mm-hmm. I think. You know, so some people try to say as a gay man, you know, trying to trying to make that comparison as a gay man to to being a minority, being black was not a good, not a fair comparison. It's like he's trying people. He's he's making an effort here. He's reaching. He's trying to reach mm-hmm. people halfway. You know, I don't love the guy. He's not my first choice either, but he's not the devil. OK, mm-hmm. so exactly. Okay, Warren said student debt forgiveness as outreach to African-American voters. Um, Student debt forgiveness will help close the black-white wealth gap. Well, maybe if, I mean, for African-Americans who have gone to university, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Another question, should we take down the wall on the southern border with taxpayer money? Senator Warren, back to you. You've said that the border wall that President Trump has proposed is, quote, a monument to hate and division. Would you ask taxpayers to pay to take down any part of the wall on the nation's southern border? So, if there are parts of the wall that are not useful in our defense, of course we should do it. The real point here is that we need to stop this man-made crisis at the border. Trump is the one who has created this crisis, and he has done it in no small part by helping destabilize the governments even further in Central America. He has withdrawn aid. That means that families have to flee for their lives, have to flee for any economic opportunity. You know, when I found out that our government was actually taking away children from their families, I went down to the border. I went down there immediately. I was in McAllen, Texas, and I just hope everyone remembers what this looks like. There's like a giant Amazon warehouse filled with cages of women, cages of men, and cages of little girls and little boys. I spoke to a woman who was in the cage of nursing mothers, and she told me she'd given a drink to a police officer, and that the word had come down from the gangs that she was helping the police. She knew what that meant. She wrapped up her baby and she ran for the border. We need to treat the people who come here with dignity and with respect. A great nation does not separate children from their families. We need to live our values at the border every single day. Thank you, Senator. Senator Booker, a quick response. 
Look, I want to be quick on this because I'd like to get back to something that wasn't included in. Is <laughs> so would is we all? Absol absolutely. If, the, if this is not effective, we see people cutting holes in his wall, his wall, what he brags about, it's just wrong. We need to have policies that respect dignity, keep us safe and strong. Make the Trumps pay for it. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. It, it, could work as a, it could work as a campaign promise, and you get bonus points if it doesn't even come out to be true after the election. <laughs> <laughs> it, it only looks more <laughs> prescient. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, let's see. Um, okay. Elizabeth Warren said, if there are parts of the wall that are not useful for our defense, of course we should do it. We should take it down with taxpayer money. Okay. Um, Booker made a callback to a previous topic. <laughs> he said, I have a lifetime of experience with black voters. I've been one since I was 18. I wanted to return back to this issue of, of black voters. I, I have a lifetime of experience with black voters. I've been one since I was 18. Um, nobody on this stage should need a focus group to hear from African-American voters. Uh, black voters are pissed off and they're worried. They're pissed off because the only time our issues seem to be really paid attention to by politicians is when people are looking for their vote. And they're worried because the Democratic Party, we don't want to uh, see people miss this opportunity and lose because we are nominating someone that doesn't, isn't trusted, doesn't have authentic connection. And so that's what's on the ballot. And issues do matter. I, I have a lot of respect uh, for, for the vice president. He is swore me into my office as a hero. This week, I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, because, because marijuana, marijuana, marijuana in our country is already legal for privileged people. And it's one, the war on drugs has been a war on black and brown people. And so let me just, let me just say this. With more African-Americans under criminal supervision in America than all the slaves since 1850, do not roll up into communities and not talk directly to issues that are going to relate to the liberation of children. Because there are people in Congress right now that admit to smoking marijuana, while there are people, our kids are in jail right now for those drug crimes. And so these are the kind of issues that mean a lot to our community, and if we don't have somebody authentically, we lost the last election. Let me just give you this data example. We lost Quickly. in, in Quickly, Wisconsin please. because of a massive diminution, a lot of reasons, but there was a massive diminution in the African-American vote. We need to have someone that can inspire, as Kamala said, to inspire African-Americans to the polls at Thank record you, numbers. Thank you, Senator Booker. Vice President Biden, you can respond to that. I'll be very brief. Number one, I think we should decriminalize marijuana, period. And I think everyone, anyone who has a record should be let out of jail. Their record's expunged. It be completely zeroed out. But I do think it makes sense, based on data, that we should study what the long-term effects are for the use of marijuana. That's all it is. Number one, everybody gets out. Record expunged. Secondly, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of that, that Obama coalition. I come out of the black community in terms of my support. 
If you notice, I have more people supporting me in the black community that announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus, the only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate, a whole range of people. No, My point no, is, that's not true. The other that's one is true. here. <laughs> no, I said the first. I said the first African-American elected. The first African-American. So my point is, my point is, one of the reasons I was picked to be vice president was because of my relationship, long-standing relationship with the black community. I was part of that coalition. You know, Booker is definitely one of those guys who definitely has some canned lines that he wants to get in, into the thing. And I think when he got when he got mm-hmm. bypassed on the previous topic, he's like, no, 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 this will not stand. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then he and then he went after Biden and he said, uh, this week I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I thought you might have been high when he said it. <laughs> <laughs> he says marijuana is already legal for rich people, essentially, which, I, you know, I don't know. It's true in some states, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm. So Biden says decriminalize marijuana, expunge records, study the long-term effects of marijuana. Mm. I came out of the black community in terms of support. Oh, okay. Mm. Um, the only African-American woman that had ever been elected to the U.S. Senate is endorsing me. And Harris said, no, Vice President, that's not true. The other one is here. He said, I said the first. I said the first. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> you may have meant that. You wish you'd said that now, but you said the wrong thing, as you do. Mm-hmm. <sighs> These guys. Moving on, we went to abortion. Okay. Many states, including right here where we are tonight in Georgia, have passed laws that severely limit or outright ban abortion. Right now, Roe versus Wade protects a woman's right to abortion nationwide. But if Roe gets overturned and abortion access disappears in some states, would you intervene as president to try to bring that access back? Senator Klobuchar. Well, of course. Uh, we should codify Roe v. Wade into law. That is what we should do. And this president indicated early on what he was going to do, and he's done it. Uh, when he was running for office, he literally said he, women should go to jail. Then he dialed it back and said doctors should go to jail. So no surprise that we're seeing these kinds of laws in Georgia and Alabama where his allies are passing these bills. And what we have to remember is that the people are with us. And I predict this will be a big election in issue in the general election. And I just can't wait to stand across from Donald Trump and say this to him. You know what? The people are with us. Over 70% of the people support Roe v. Wade. Over 90% of the people support funding for Planned Parenthood and making sure that women can get the health care they need. He is off the track on this, and he will hear from the women of America, and this is how we're going to win this election. Just this weekend, Louisiana re-elected a Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards. He has signed one of the country's toughest laws restricting abortion. Is there room in the Democratic Party for someone like him, someone who can win in a deep red state, but who does not support abortion rights? Senator Warren. Look, I believe that abortion rights are human rights. I believe that they are also economic rights. 
and protecting the right of a woman to be able to make decisions about her own body is fundamentally what we do and what we stand for as a Democratic Party. Understand this. When someone makes abortion illegal in America, rich women will still get abortions. It's just going to fall hard on poor women. It's going to fall hard on girls, women who don't even know that they're pregnant because they have been molested by an uncle. I want to be in America where everybody has a chance. And I know it can be a hard decision for people, but here's the thing. When it comes down to that decision, a woman should be able to call on her mother. She should be able to call on her partner. She be, should be able to call on her priest or her rabbi. But the one entity that should not be in the middle of that decision is the government. Senator Warren, I need to push you on this a little bit for a specific answer to the question. Governor John Bell Edwards in Louisiana is an anti-abortion governor who has signed abortion restrictions in Louisiana. Is there room for him and the Democratic Look, Party with those politics? I have made clear what I think the Democratic Party stands for. I'm not here to try to drive anyone out of this party. I'm not here to try to build fences. But I am here to say this is what I will fight for as President of the United States. The women of America can count Senator on Warren, me. thank you. Senator Sanders, I'll give you 30 just, seconds. Uh, Amy mentioned that women feel strongly on it. Well, let me just tell you that if there's ever a time in American history where the men of this country must stand with the women, this is the moment. And I get very tired, very tired of hearing the hypocrisy from conservatives who say, get the government off our backs. We want small government. Well, if you want to get the government out of the backs of the American people, that understand that it is women who control their own bodies, not politicians. Senator this is a voting Sanders, issue. thank you. This is a voting uh, issue. Senator Booker. This is a voting issue. This is a voter suppression issue. Right here in this great state of Georgia, it was the voter suppression, particularly of African-American communities, that prevented us from having a Governor Stacey Abrams right now. Yes. And that is, when you have undemocratic means, when you suppress people's votes to get elected, those are the very people you're gonna come af after when, you, when you're in office. And this bill, opposed by over 70%, the heartbeat bill here, proposed by over 70% of Georgians, is the result from voter suppression. This gets back to the issue about making sure we are fighting every single day that whoever is the nominee, they can overcome the attempts to suppress the votes, particularly of low-income and minority voters, and particularly in the black community Senator, like we saw here in Georgia. Senator Booker, thank you. And to that point, individual states, as you all know, set their own rules for voting and for elections. Depending on where you live, you may be required to show ID or not. You might have a lot of days for early voting or fewer days or none. You might have a polling place in walking distance or you might have to drive or take a bus to the edge of town. With that in mind, our next question comes from Jenna in Maryland who asks, what will you do at the executive level to ensure that every American has equal access to the ballot box? Mayor Buttigieg. Well, uh, we need federal leadership to establish voting rights for the 21st century because this affects every other issue that we care about. Now, the House of Representatives passed a, a pro-democracy, anti-corruption bill, which is one of many good bills to die in Mitch McConnell's hands in the United States Senate. We know that with the White House in the right hands, we can make 
for example, election days, a federal holiday. We can use carrots and sticks to induce states to do the right thing with automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, making it easier for people to vote and, in particular, recognizing that we cannot allow the kind of racially motivated or partisan voter suppression or gerrymandering that often dictates the outcome of election before the voting even begins. Right now, we have politicians picking out their voters rather than the other way around. That compounding with what is being done to restrict the right to vote means that our democracy is not worthy of the name. I just, I and wanna, while these process this... issues are not always fashionable, we must act to reform our democracy itself, including when it comes to choosing our presidency. Like Senator we do Klobuchar, in every I just, election, I giving out, it to the person who got the most votes. I agree Forgive with me, what mayor. the mayor has just said, but this is a good example uh, where he has said the right words, but I actually have the experience and of leading 11 of the bills that are in that House passed bill you just referred to. Um, and I think this kind of experience matters. I have been devoted to this from the time that I've got to the Senate. And I think having that experience, knowing how you can get things done, leading the bills to take the social media companies to task, a bipartisan bill to say, yeah, you have to say where these ads come from and how they're paid for, and stop the unbelievable practice where we still have 11 states that don't have pay backup paper ballots. That is my bipartisan bill, and I am so class close to getting it done. And the way I get it done is if I'm president. But just like I have won statewide, and Mayor, I have all appreciation for your good work as a local official, and you did not when you tried, I also have actually done this work. I think experience should matter. Mayor Buttigieg, I'll let you respond to that. So first of all, Washington experience is not the only experience that matters. There's more than 100 years of Washington experience on this stage. And where are we right now as a country? I have the experience of bringing people together to get something done. I have the experience of being commanded into a war zone by an American president. I have the experience of knowing what is at stake as the decisions made in those big white buildings come into our lives, our homes, our families, our workplaces, and our marriages. And I would submit that this is the kind of experience we need, not just to go to Washington, but to change it before it is too late. Mr. Mayor, thank you. Congresswoman Gowart, on the original here. question of voting thank rights, you. please. I mean, voting rights are essential for our democracy. Securing our elections is essential for our democracy. I've introduced legislation called the Securing America Elections Act that mandates paper ballots to make sure that every single voter's voice is heard. But I want to get back to Pete Buttigieg and his comment about experience. Uh, I, Pete, you'll agree that uh, the service that we both have provided to our country as veterans by itself does not qualify us to serve as Commander-in-Chief. I think the most recent example of your inexperience in national security and foreign policy came from your recent careless statement about how you as president be willing to send our troops to Mexico to fight the cartels. As commander-in-chief, leader of our armed forces, I bring extensive experience serving for seven years in Congress on the Foreign Affairs Committee, 
on the Armed Services Committee, on the Homeland Security Committee, meeting with leaders of, of uh, countries around the world, working with military commanders of different commands, uh, dealing with high-level national security briefings, understanding what's necessary, the preparation that I've gotten to walk in on day one to serve as Commander-in-Chief. Congresswoman, thank so you. I've Mr. Merrill, I'll allow to you to that. respond. I know that it's par for the course in Washington to take remarks mm -hmm. out of context, but that is outlandish even by the standards of today's politics. Are, are you saying that you didn't say that? I was talking about U.S.-Mexico cooperation. We've been doing security cooperation with Mexico for years with law enforcement cooperation and a military relationship that could continue to be developed with training relationships, for example. Do you seriously think anybody on this stage is proposing invading Mexico? That, that's not I'm what talking I said. About that's building not what I said. I'm talking about building up alliances. <laughs> and if your question is about experience, let's also talk about judgment. One of the foreign leaders you mentioned meeting was Bashar al-Assad. I have, in my experience, such as it is, whether you think it counts or not, since it wasn't accumulated in Washington, enough judgment that I would not have sat down with a murderous dictator like that. Congresswoman Gabbard, let me allow you to respond. Thank you. You were asked directly whether you would send our troops to Mexico to fight cartels, and your answer was yes. The fact checkers can check this out. No. But your point about judgment is absolutely correct. Our commander-in-chief does need to have good judgment. And what you've just pointed out is that you would lack the courage to meet with both adversaries and friends to ensure the peace and national security of our nation. I take the example of those leaders who have come before us, leaders like JFK, who met with Khrushchev, like Roosevelt, who met with Stalin, like, Donald like Trump Reagan, who met like Reagan, who met and worked with Gorbachev. These issues of national security are incredibly important. I will meet with and do what is necessary to make sure that no more of our brothers and sisters in uniform are needlessly sent into harm's way fighting regime change wars that undermine our national security. I'll bring real leadership and experience to the White House. Oh, you, I've got to respond Senator to Sanders, I'm going to have a original point. The American people understand that the political system we have today is corrupt. And it is not just voter suppression, which cost the Democratic Party a governorship here in this state, not just denying black people and people of color the right to vote, but we also have a system through Citizens United, which allows billionaires to buy elections. So what we need to do, simple and straightforward, in every state in this country, through the federal government, if you are 18, you have a right to vote. End of discussion. We have to overturn Citizens United. We need to move toward public funding of elections. On this last point, Mr. Steyer. Well, I agree with exactly what Bernie said, but I want to talk about how we're going to win in 2020. I don't mean to change the subject, but I think it's sort of important that the Democratic Party not only beat Donald Trump, in 2020, but have a sweeping victory across the country. And what that's going to mean is turnout. In the United States of America, the Democratic Party keeps talking about trying to persuade a few people who are Republicans to like us, when up to half the people don't vote at all because they think neither party tells the truth, no one deals with my issues, the system is broken, why would we vote? 
But what we've found at NextGen America is that is the start of a conversation about why votes are so important. And if you look at 2018 and flipping the House, what really happened was Democrats, Democratic voting went up by three quarters. In the 38 congressional districts where Next Gen America was turning out young people, the turnout went up by more than 100 percent, more Thank than you, double. Sir. So for us to win, for everybody on this stage, for whoever is the candidate to have a Senate that's Democratic, for us to have the sweeping victory that we Mr. absolutely Sire, are you. going to have next year, it's a turnout question. We're going to have to tell the truth Sir. and we're going to have to organize across this country. Klobuchar says codify Roe versus Wade into law. Elizabeth Warren dodges the question about blue dog Democrats on abortion. And then she says, I'm not here to try to drive anybody out of this party. Um, Sanders says men must stand with women on this. Uh, Booker says voter suppression leads to abortion bans. Okay. Mm. I think he was talking about like some of the unfortunate Southern states that was it, I don't know if it was Georgia or Mississippi. Where was it? Some of those uh, places. I believe it was Mississippi. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. The, right, well, I think the there stuff. was more than one, but yeah, I know, I know it was there. Was there, also, there was one in Florida, right? I'm sure there was. There was one in Indiana, too. It didn't go quite as far, but yeah. Well, I'm talking about the voter suppression with... Uh... Oh, voter suppression. Sorry, I thought you were talking about abortion. Um, well, Florida had a thing where they uh, they had voted on the ballot to restore voting rights to, like, I can't remember how many, like, millions of felons there, mm. because they had a, a ban on you being a felon and, and voting, like if you ever had a felony. Now they've changed it to where you can, but they want the legislature, what they wanted to do is say, okay, you can vote, but you have to pay back all the court fees first. And then they were like, you know, there was a court that was like, no, 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 can't do that. It's a poll uh, tax, basically. Yeah, it's a poll tax, basically. Yeah, exactly. So now they've, they've lifted that. So, but they, they tried it. They, they really tried it in Florida. Surprise. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I, but I was thinking about like the Stacey Abrams and who's the well, other that guy. That was yeah, yeah. That was a different years ago. Uh, issue. Yeah, I, I I think that was I think that was Booker's point is that like these states where you know voters were suppressed and stuff, and these people who should have won didn't win. Was it mm. Gillum? Gillum? Somebody? Andrew, Andrew Gillum was in Florida. Stacey Abrams. Florida. Was in Georgia. Uh, Brian okay. Kemp was the guy that she was running against in. Uh, uh, in Georgia, he was the Secretary of State. He launched an investigation into Stacey Abrams' campaign as the election was happening. When he was running against her, they purged millions of voters. They changed, you know, polling sites. They, you know, reduced polling sites. It's, if for not uh, voter suppression, I'm I guarantee that both those would have come up for Democrats. But that's okay. how Republicans operate. So. <laughs> well, I guess I mean I guess uh, Booker's. Uh implication is that then there were some uh, losses for abortion rights in those states yeah after those after those uh, electoral losses there so yeah that's a fair connection to make so um i think let me see sorry the next yeah continuing along here um oh yeah fighting voter suppression again uh Buttigieg says carrots and use carrots and sticks, automatic voter registration, same day voter registration, election should be national holidays, 
right now we have politicians picking out their voters rather than the other way around. So obviously he's talking about gerrymandering. So yeah, he's talking about a lot of good stuff there. Uh, Klobuchar says, Buttigieg says the right words, but I actually have the experience. Okay, and then th- this starts kind of some back and forth, I think, at some point. It gets really complicated here. There's some stuff involving Gabbard, too. Uh, mm-hmm. Gabbard says, paper ballots. Buttigieg wants to send troops to Mexico to fight the cartels. What? <laughs> Okay. okay, Tulsi. Okay, Tulsi. <laughs> okay, well, now I've got to try to figure out what was the back and forth here because I've got a whole bunch of back and forth between Buttigieg and Gabbard going from here. <laughs> Does she have an article from Sputnik or RT to, sh- to show him <laughs> to back that up? Is that what she was getting this um, from? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <clears throat> Let me see here. Um, let's see. He said... Um, Buttigieg says something, then he says, and if your question is about experience, let's also talk about judgment. One of the foreign leaders you mentioned meeting was Bashar al-Assad. I have, in my experience, such as it is, whether you think it counts or not, since it wasn't accumulated in Washington, enough judgment that I would not have sat down with a murderous dictator like that. Mm-hmm. She says, you would lack the courage to meet with both adversaries and friends to ensure the peace and national security of our nation. Um, oh wait, she said that before, and he said that in response. I don't know. I, no, I, I remember. No, I remember this exchange. Yeah, it was a lot of crosstalk, but I basically it was like, "Yo, you would, you know, just like Trump did." Isn't that what he said? Like, oh, well, with, with yeah, the she said yeah, something. She said, "I take the example of the leaders who have come before us, leaders like JFK who met with Khrushchev, like Roosevelt who met with Stalin." And then, uh, and then Buttigieg interjected, like Donald Trump, who met with Kim. And then she like said, like Reagan, who met. And then she glanced over at him angrily. She's like, "Hey, I had a list was, here." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. How did you come up with, you know, on the spot with the perfect counterexample? Wow. Yeah. Right. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think she's totally wrong that you should never meet with your, you know, you don't negotiate with your friends. That's the cliche, right? I mean, that's the thing you got to do in foreign policy. But, like, you don't meet without preconditions. You don't just meet people to meet people. Like, you have, like, the, uh, both sides have to give something up to to come to the table. You know, that's that's the that's the thing that's missing from that. And that's what you know, that's why Trump's getting played so hard by Kim, because he sends him one beautiful letter and they fall in love. And then, you know, (laughs) whatever happens, you know, and then then they're like, you know, making, uh, you know, walking across the border together and then nothing gets accomplished because like no concessions had to be made for that meeting to ever happen. So maybe it's not the best, but it's like, you know, you got to get something to like even come to the table, I would think. I think I think I mean. Or you, I mean, it doesn't even have to be something has to be nailed out beforehand. You could meet without preconditions, but as a politician, you've got to have a plan how to yeah. handle them after the thing. If it doesn't right, go the right. way you want, like, you, you know, if you got to be ready to put some like public pressure on them, like, hey, I thought Kim Jong-un and I could have a meeting, you know, we were going to meet fair and square and really hammer some stuff out. But it turns out, I guess he doesn't really want to change at all. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to be able to come out with something like that if you don't get what you want. <laughs> exactly exactly but um but the thing is like i think for somebody who's like a very 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 junior 
I don't know. Was she, what was she, a senator, a congress, I mean, a congresswoman or something at that point? I mean, what was she when she met with Bashar al-Assad? She was just a congresswoman. Yeah. She's just a congresswoman. Okay. You're you're a congresswoman meeting with a person who's the controller of a country, a dictator, Mm -hmm. a person who's killing his own people. Like, I mean, like, yeah, I know, you know, Syria is not, you know, this is not like one of the major five economies of the world or something. But still, there's a huge power imbalance there. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, you're not coming into that meeting. I, you know, nobody even knows what she did there. Nobody knows what she said. Nobody knows what her goal was. Peace, mm-hmm. presumably. But the point is, like, I mean, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> Again. I'm I'm happy to see that Buttigieg continues to be in this thing insofar only as it continues to be somebody who can throw a, a wrench in Tulsi's plans here. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> yeah. So, and then I think we're coming in towards the end here. Sanders said public funding of elections, teens registered to vote. I assume he means like over 18. Mm-hmm. Okay. Stayer says turnout not persuasion is important for the next election, I guess, which I think I agree with. I've talked to the Trump people. They can't be reasoned with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Turnout of Democrats is the only option. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, closing statements. We finally come to closing statements. Um, but- Thank you, Rachel. It's an honor to be here tonight. I have not yet qualified for the December stage and need your help to do that. If you believe in my voice and that I should be up here, uh, please go to CoreyBooker.com. Please help. I had a closing statement prepared, but I saw in the audience during the break uh, a man named John Lewis. And perhaps it's interesting and important for me to mention why I'm so grateful to him. I've been calling in this whole election for our need to fight and fight the right way by bringing people together to create transformative change, not just beat Donald Trump. That's the floor. We need to go to the ceiling. We need to go to the mountaintop. I am literally here on this stage right now because 50 years ago, there was a lawyer on a couch who changed his life, changed his mind to get up and start representing families, one of them mine, who were discriminated against. The house I grew up in is because of that lawyer's activity. When I asked him why, Why he did what he did, he told me that on March 7th, 1965, he was watching a movie called Judgment at Nuremberg on TV, and they interrupted that movie to show a bridge in Alabama called the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And there he saw John Lewis and other marchers who were beaten viciously by Alabama state troopers. We all owe a debt that we cannot repay. We all drink deeply from wells of freedom and liberty that we did not dig. This is the moment in America where we need a leader that can inspire us to get up and fight again. That we have truly a moral moment in America like it was back in 1965. If you give me a chance to lead, I will cause what John Lewis says is good trouble. I will challenge us I will ask more from you than any other president has ever asked before because we need to mobilize a new American movement. Keep me on this stage. Keep me on this race. It is time we fight and fight together. Please go to CoreyBooker.com. Senator Booker, thank you very much. Mr. Steyer, your closing statement. Last time I was on this stage, I started by saying that everybody here is more patriotic and more competent than the criminal in the White House. And I stand by that statement. But I'm different from everybody else on this stage. 
I know that the government in Washington, D.C. is broken. I know that it's been purchased by corporations. And I've spent a decade putting together coalitions of ordinary American citizens to beat those corporations. I'm the only one on this stage who's willing to talk about structural change in Washington itself, term limits, that if we're going to make bold changes, we're going to need new and different people in charge. I'm the only person on this stage who spent decades building an international business. Whoever of us is the Democratic nominee is going to have to face Mr. Trump or the Republican and talk about the economy, talk about growth, understand that we can make Mr. Trump what he is, a fraud and a failure on the economy, which is his strong point. I'm the only person on this stage who will say that climate is my first priority, that it's our biggest challenge, but it's our biggest opportunity to recreate this country. If you want to beat Mr. Trump, if you want to break the corporate stranglehold on this government, if you want to pass all of the progressive policies that everyone on this stage wants, I'm the person who can do it. Thank you, Mr. Steyer. I have spent a decade trusting the thank, American thank, people. Thank you, Mr. Steyer. I'm Stryer. asking you to trust me. Thank you. Congresswoman Gabbard, go ahead. My personal commitment to you, to all of my fellow Americans, is to treat you with respect and compassion, something that we in Hawaii call aloha. Every single person deserves to be treated with respect, regardless of race, uh, religion or gender, or even your politics. Inclusion, unity, respect, aloha, these will be the operating principles for my administration. Now, Dr. Martin Luther King visited Hawaii first back in 1959, where he expressed his appreciation for what we call the aloha spirit. He said, we look to you for inspiration as a bold example for what you have already succeeded in the areas of racial harmony and racial justice where we are still struggling to achieve in other sections of the country. He later went on to say, as I looked out at the various faces in various colors mingled together like the waters of the sea, I see only one face, the face of the future. Working side by side, Let's defeat the divisiveness of Donald Trump. Come together and usher in a 21st century of racial harmony, of racial justice, peace, inclusion, and true equality. Working side by side, let's make Dr. King's dream our reality. Thank you, Congresswoman. Mr. Yang, your turn. I'm here with my wife, Evelyn, tonight. We have two young boys, Christopher and Damien. How many of you all are parents like us? here in the room. So if you're a parent, you've had this thought, maybe you've been afraid to express it, and it is this, our kids are not all right. They're not all right because we're leaving them a future that is far darker than the lives that we have led as their parents. We are going through the greatest economic transformation in our country's history, the fourth industrial revolution, and it is pushing more and more of our people to the side. We talk as if Donald Trump is the cause of all of our problems, he is not. He is a symptom, and we need to cure the disease. Now, my first move was not to run for President of the United States, because I am not insane. <laughs> my first move was to, was to go to DC, talk to our leaders, and say, technology is ripping us apart, immigrants are being scapegoated, our kids are being left behind, and the American dream that my parents came here to find is dying before our eyes. And the people in Washington, DC had nothing for this. 
they don't want to touch it. They don't want to talk about an issue they don't think they have a solution for. I'm not running for president because I fantasized about being president. I'm running for president because, like many of you here in this room tonight, I'm a parent and a patriot, and I have seen the future that we're leaving for our kids, and it is not something I'm willing to accept. We need to create a new way forward for our people. If you want to join us in rewriting the rules of the 21st century economy, go to yang2020.com and make it so that we can look our kids in the eyes and say to them, and believe it, your country loves you, your country values you, and you will be all right. Thank you, Mr. Yang. <laughs> Senator Klobuchar. The nation was riveted this week uh, by the testimony in Washington. And one of the people we heard from yesterday was Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. And what he said was this. He spoke to his immigrant father. And he said, in this country, you can tell the truth, and it's going to be fine. It reminded me of uh, Army Council years and years ago in the McCarthy hearing, someone from Iowa, actually, Mr. Welch, who said, have you no sense of decency, sir? I want us to remember that this election is, yes, an economic check on this president. And I have bold ideas that we can do to go forward as a country to make college more affordable and bring down the costs of health care, yes. But this is also a patriotism check, a value check, a decency check. And when you look at the people that turned out in Kentucky and turned out in Virginia, people turned out that didn't vote in 2016. African Americans are turning out like we didn't see before. But we also, and they must be with us, and we must get our fired up Democratic base with us. But we also must get those independents and moderate Republicans who cannot stomach this guy anymore. This is how we build a coalition. So we don't just beat Donald Trump. We bring the U.S. Senate to some sense. We send Mitch McConnell packing. This is how we win. So if you want to join us and remember that this won't be for me a personal victory, it'll be a national victory of someone that wins in red districts and suburban purple districts and bright blue districts every single time. If you want to join us and if you believe that our work doesn't end on election day but begins on inauguration day, join us, amyklobuchar.com. Senator Klobuchar, thank you. Thank you. Senator Harris. So we're in a fight. Um, this is a fight for our rule of law, for our democracy, and for our system of justice. And it's a fight we need to win. And to fight this fight, I believe we have to have the ability to not only have a nominee who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Donald Trump, and I have taken on Jeff Session, I have taken on Bill Barr, I have taken on Brett Kavanaugh. I know I have the ability to do that. We also need someone who can unify the party and the country and who has the experience of having done that. I've done that work. I believe we need someone who has the ability to speak to all the people, regardless of their race, their gender, their party affiliation, where they live geographically, or the language their grandmother speaks. My entire career has been spent having one client and one client only, the people. I have never represented a corporation. I've never represented a special interest. And in this election, justice and the various injustices people are facing, regardless of where they live or their race or gender, are very much on the ballot from economic justice to reproductive justice to healthcare justice to educational justice. And I truly believe 
that when we overcome these injustices, we will then unlock the potential of the American people and the promise of America. And that's the America I believe in, that's the America I see, and that is why I'm running for president. Thank you, Senator Harris. Mayor Buttigieg, go ahead. Well, first of all, uh, I want to remark that we're in the city of Atlanta, a city where a great local leader, Maynard Jackson, helped create the black middle class that Atlanta is known by, by ensuring that taxpayer dollars were spent in a way that reflected the need to expand opportunity to those who were excluded. And just as local leaders have shown great leadership, we need to use the powers of the presidency on challenges like this, expanding opportunity and expanding a sense of belonging to those who have been excluded in this country. I'm not only running to defeat Donald Trump, I am running to prepare for the day that begins when Donald Trump has left office, to launch the era that must come after Trump. That era must be characterized not by exclusion, but by belonging, and so must our campaign. I am inviting progressives who have agreed on these issues we've been talking about tonight all along, moderates who are ready to be part of this coalition, and a lot of future former Republicans who I know are watching this, <laughs> disgusted by what is happening in their own party and in this country. I want you to know that everybody is welcome in this movement that we're building, and everybody is welcome in this future that we must create. I hope you go to PeteForAmerica.com, join this effort, and help us create a better era for the American people beginning in November 2020. Thank you. Senator Sanders. Thank you. Let me say a word about myself. Unusual as it may seem. <laughs> uh, I am the son of an immigrant, young man of 17, who came to this country without a nickel in his pocket. I have some sense of the immigrant experience. I will stand with the 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country. At the age of 21, as a member of a civil rights group at the University of Chicago, I was arrested, spent the night in jail, and I have been committed to the fight against all forms of discrimination, racial discrimination, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, and religious bigotry. I will lead an administration that will look like America, will end the divisiveness brought by Trump and bring us together. During this campaign, I am proud to say that I have received more campaign contributions than any candidate at this point in an election in American history, over 4 million contributions, averaging $18 apiece. If you want to be part of a movement that is not only going to beat Trump, but transform America, that doesn't have a super PAC, doesn't do fundraisers at wealthy people's home. Please join us at BernieSanders.com. Thank you. Senator Warren, the floor is yours. So, thank you. You know, I listened to this debate tonight, and I hear a lot of really good ideas. But I take a look at the issues we've talked about. We've talked about climate change. We've talked about defense spending. We've talked about private health insurance. We should have talked about gun violence. What do these issues have in common? Well, first, they touch people all over this country in their everyday lives. And what is the second thing they have in common? We know what we need to do. 
We have a lot of good ideas for how to fix it, and the majority of Americans are with us on it, and yet we don't make change. Why not? Because of corruption. Because we have a government that works better for big drug companies than it does for people trying to fill a prescription. It works better for a giant defense industry than it does for everyone who worries about the money that goes into arms instead of into our public schools. We have a government that works for those at the top and not for anyone else. I have the biggest anti-corruption plan since Watergate. It involves ending lobbying as we know it, blocking the revolving door between industry and Washington, making everyone who runs for federal office put their tax returns online. We have to have the courage not to make just individual changes, not to fight for little pieces. We want to make real progress on, on climate. Then we have to start by attacking the corruption that gives the oil industry and other fossil fuel industries a stranglehold over this country. I am so grateful to be here, and I am grateful to an America that gave the daughter of a janitor a chance to become a public school teacher a chance to become a college professor, a chance to become a United States Thank senator, you, and a chance to become a candidate for president of the United States. Thank senator. you. Senator. Vice, Thank you. Vice President Biden, your closing statement. I assume when we were talking about the corruption of the federal government, we weren't talking about Barack Obama and his spotless administration he made so much progress. But one thing we haven't talked about here today we haven't talked, we've talked about everything. We haven't talked about the one thing I think is most consequential. You know, the American people have an enormous opportunity. There's incredible, incredible, I'm, I've never been more optimistic about our prospects in my entire career. And I got elected as a 29-year-old kid to the United States Senate. Folks, we are in a position where we have, we're the wealthiest nation in the world. Our workers are more productive than workers around the world, four, three times as productive as workers in Asia. We have more great research universities that the people own than all the rest of the world combined. We're in a position where we've led not by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. I'm so tired of everybody walking around like, woe is me, what are we going to do? Let's remember, this is the United States of America. There has never, ever, ever been a time when we've set our mind to do something, we've been unable to do it. Never, never, never. So it's time to remember who we are. Get up. Let's take back this country and lead the world again. It's within our power to do it. Get up and take it back. Booker says beating Trump is the floor. We need to get to the mountaintop. Okay. <laughs> um, Steyer says structural change in D.C., term limits. We're all better than the criminal in the White House. I agree, except Tulsi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gabbard says respect, compassion, aloha. Operating principles. Martin Luther King visited Hawaii. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I'm I'm so, I'm drastically summarizing, but you know it was she talked about that a lot and stuff. Yeah. Whatever. I saw the former governor of Hawaii said that she should just resign immediately. <laughs> yeah, she's disgraceful. <laughs> uh, Andrew Yang says our kids are not all right. Uh, the fourth industrial revolution he talked about, which is something he's talked about a lot. Um, Trump is a symptom. We need to cure the disease. Technology is ripping us apart. And I was thinking, you're ripping us apart, Lisa. <laughs> Did you ever see The Room? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Little movie called The Room. <laughs> yeah. 
technology is ripping us apart. I was thinking that that yeah, that movie. Klobuchar, Klobuchar said, "Have you no sense of decency, sir?" Um, a de- she says, "This this election is a decency check. We need to send Mitch McConnell packing." Okay. Uh, Harris said a bunch of stuff about justice. Again, justice is on the ballot this time. Not anymore. Sorry, Harris. <laughs> justice is not because I think justice is on the ballot was supposed to be her, right? She's the mm-hmm. justice that's on the ballot this time, but, but oh, yeah. now she's dropped out. So yeah, justice that's isn't on the ballot on it. It's a sad <laughs> story. There's no more justice on the ballot in 2020. <laughs> Sorry, everyone else. <laughs> Sorry, 14 other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Buttigieg said something. Future former Republicans who are disgusted. I'm confused by what I even wrote there. I don't know. Maybe it's what he said, but (laughs) I'll be interested to hear the audio of this when he dropped the audio. Right. Future former Republicans who are disgusted. Okay. Bernie Sanders, I will stand with the 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country. I have received more individual campaign donations than any candidate in American history. Uh, Over 4 million. uh, Averaging $18 a piece. So in 2016, it was famously $27. Now it's $18. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think over 4 million. I think today it was almost 5 million or something. I saw that his, his 2019 f- fundraising had finished there just a couple of days over, t- days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Warren said anti-corruption in the lobby Lock the revolving door. Disclose taxes as candidates. And Joe Biden said, I assume when we talk about corruption, we aren't talking about Barack Obama and his spotless administration. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Once again, trying to clean himself by association. (laughs) And he said something, get up and take it back. Okay. I guess we're talking about the, uh, the White House here. (laughs) So anyways, those were my notes about the, the November debate. Nice. Yeah. <clears throat> we should definitely try to get on the December one sooner. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking February. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll try to start watching it. Who was putting it on? Who put on that one then? Let's look for that. I don't know. Hopefully it's not CNN because they are the worst about getting yeah, those video pitches about putting it online. I, I hope it was <laughs> frankly I hope it was MSNBC again because they didn't make it too hard this time to to find their full oh, video. Oh, yeah, I wasn't God. even worried about that being found because they've been pretty good about it. But you think a television network would <laughs> be a little more transparent about these kind of things? But yeah, I had to like remember I had to go to that Google or uh, Facebook video to to actually find it here. All right, so the uh, oh, okay, hold on, next month December. Sponsored by PBS NewsHour and Politico. Okay. Well, PBS, I mean, some of their stuff is on YouTube. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll see what we can find it and stuff. Yeah, we'll find it. But, All right. Yeah, well, thanks for doing this, Chai. I know it was, uh, it was a, a monumental effort this time, but <laughs> yeah. hopefully we can uh, both be in better better health and get it, get it, get it done sooner so it's fresher in our minds and stuff and a little closer to the headlines. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. I think as long as we don't lap ourselves behind. When's the Iowa caucuses? Oh God, I don't want to know. <laughs> I got I don't want to. I don't want to be behind that curve. <laughs> as long as we yeah. can get these out before then. <laughs> yeah. Hey Bob, let me know when, when. As soon as you find out when any Indiana primary voting is, let me know because I don't oh, want to miss it. That won't be until May, but yeah, we'll probably only have like one or two choices at that point. But. Yeah, I think it was I think it was May fifth. I'm I'm thinking so. Yeah, the Iowa caucuses are February third. Uh, <laughs> we got to get cracking. <laughs> yeah, this is the month, right. this is the month of getting this out. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll work on yeah. that for sure. Great. Look this up. Okay. Yeah, we definitely don't want to miss that. I think they need to switch this up. I don't think Iowa should be first. Why are they always going to be first? Yeah, this is another one of those those dumb things that we argue about every four years, and every four years we complain about it and say, oh, you know, are these early states too wide? Is it really representative? Maybe not. Gosh, maybe we should change it. Maybe someday we will. And then we don't, and then four years later we're doing the same thing again, and it's like, yeah. just change it, people. May 5th, just, Indiana. Just change it. Yeah, you know, get get some more diversity in the early states. For God's sakes, you know. Yeah. Well, that's part of what people who don't like Buttigieg are saying is it's like he's super strong in places like Iowa, but then you get to like, you know, South Carolina, Florida, like yeah, single-digit territory. I, I worry about South Carolina too because it seems like a lot of times they just want to go with whoever the front runner is, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's Hillary Clinton or, you know, or this time Joe Biden, but. <clears throat> but I do think there needs to be like some, but I, and, and like, also I've been listening to like some, um, what is it? The, what is the one where they, they've been talking about the, the, the Obama campaign in, in 2007 and 2012 or whatever. Um, and going through some of these early States and stuff like that, where they have caucuses and stuff and the caucuses and stuff. And I'm thinking like the caucuses aren't even fair because they've got like, you know, and they're just talking about these funny stories like, oh, these this one high school, you know, this one high schooler who was the head of the class or something. And she got a phone call from Barack Obama and she said, well, I'll talk to you later, Mr. Obama, but I got to go back to class. So call me back later. OK, and then I'll talk about maybe caucusing for you. And so Barack Obama had to call her back later. <laughs> Isn't it funny in the caucuses? And I'm like, yeah, that's nice for these this these rarefied few states that get to have the candidates come to them and get to have the caucuses. I never met anybody in Indiana who got to meet the president and have the president like treating them like royalty or anything in Indiana, you know? Exactly. It's like yeah. there's a bunch of states out there we never get treated like this. Mm-hmm. These other states they get treated like royalty every 4 years. Mm-hmm. I think it's bullshit. Yeah. I mean, it's nice if you live in that state, I guess, but Yeah. Well, not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota. Are we going to take back the White New House? New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to take we're back going the to White South House. Dakota. Wow. Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington State to take back the White House. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Never forget the Dean scream of 2004 fame. <laughs> Can you believe the that original ended? internet meme, people? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> can't believe that ended him <laughs> <laughs> yeah it should have just been the beginning i know right Ooh, who's this guy screaming <laughs> i got to check him out <laughs> hmm. 
This guy's got yeah. passion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, like, after you mentioned the first state or two, I was like, oh, are we going to take back the White House, Bob? No, <laughs> no, like, he's got a lot of states going. Because... Huh? Yeah, he's got a lot of other states to get to before we take back the White House. Because <laughs> 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 well, I, I think that know, was after trying to rally. Like Howard Dean, rally. Yeah. I got a little bit ahead of myself. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I think it was like, I think the scream came from he came in third in Iowa, as I remember, and I think he was like trying to rally the troops. So I don't, I don't think that was like a victorious scream. I think it was more of a scream of desperation. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember the, the details, but I thought, I, I didn't, I didn't think he did anything wrong there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyways. All right. Well, Bob, I got to start thinking about bed over here, so I better give you my my music recommendations, okay? Yeah, do it. All right. Okay. Uh, Well, recently I reconnected with uh, Robbie Robertson. Wow, the band. And I didn't realize he was a member of the band Mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, like the song The Weight. Oh, yeah, Bob Dylan's backing backing band. I had no idea there was this connection. I just knew Robbie Robertson is this kind of this – you know, this Native American musician, solo artist guy, adult contemporary or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, apparently that, that song, The Weight, which I've oh, yeah. always, I've never associated with Robbie Robertson at all. Apparently he was a, you know, a person involved in that. But Oh yeah. But I recently kind of reconnect with him over the, the Irishman soundtrack or whatever, which he was oh, involved yeah. in. And apparently he and Martin Scorsese have been connected with each other. Martin Scorsese directed several of his music videos, including Somewhere Down That Crazy River, which really? I recently rewatched. I yeah, Martin Scorsese did the did the music video. Well, I know that he directed The Last Waltz, didn't he? The uh, the band's final concert. Okay, movie. I never it saw it. But yeah. yeah, yeah, that's interesting though. So, yeah, did you watch The Irishman? Uh, yeah. What did you think? Eh. Yeah, that's kind of my reaction. I might read the book it's based on, though, because it's an interesting story. But I don't, I don't know. For my big problem was, like, first of all, Al Pacino is, like, insane now. And, like, he has lost all subtlety. And, like, remember in The Godfather, yeah. he was, like, so soft-spoken and reserved. And he had only outbursts of <clears throat> anger. I feel like he's now just, like, screaming, <clears throat> coked up Al Pacino forever. I feel like that other Al Pacino has gone. But yeah. the other problem I have was, like, they kept having these flashback scenes, and, like, Robert De Niro is not the youngest man, and mm-hmm. he's, like, showing him back in the war, and it just looks like Robert De Niro now, back in World War Two. but it's supposed to be, like, 30 or 40 years before the, like, action of the movie, and it's, like, he's still just yeah. him, and it's, like, okay, all right. <laughs> I just, yeah, like, and, and, like, the part where he, he takes his daughter down the street or something to the grocery smacked her or something because she <laughs> tried to steal something or some shit, and, like, mm-hmm. he drags the guy outside and stomps on his hand on the curb, and I'm, like... I'm watching like a 70 year old man <laughs> pantomime the actions of like a 25 year old man or something, and it, 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 you know, and it, and it's, again, this is all just like, and it feels like it's kind of like a, like a greatest hits of an actor slash director slash genre, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know. It's, and it's, and it's like, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I, I frankly, I don't think Martin Scorsese has done himself a lot of favors here. And I know that's not a popular opinion. But and people are saying, like, though, this is the answer to Goodfellas. The question mm-hmm. was Goodfellas. This is the answer. It's like, 
No, no, I don't think it was. <laughs> I think that was a that was a coherent movie that you know did its own thing and answered its own questions or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're like, but this time he's old. It's like he got the people got older in Goodfellas yeah. too. It's like, <laughs> you know, we didn't need to see them go to the to the geriatric home or whatever <laughs> to, yeah. to, to really understand the, the 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 wages of sin or death or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, and and the other thing, yeah. I've always said, like, I liked Al, I liked Robert De Niro a lot better than Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always said that. Mm-hmm. I think I think Robert De Niro, you know, adds nuances to his his roles that just Pacino just doesn't have. No, I mean, even go back and watch Heat. You want to see the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, but um, but like, I I just feel like I mean like, I don't know. I think the uh, yeah, the I mean the 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 re-aging thing was totally confusing and weird, mm-hmm. and I have no idea like which one was even supposed to be the real age that they're at today. Exactly. And it's like, and number two, I have problems with the 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 the, the material because, um, what am I saying? Because like this guy is notoriously. Um, well, don't, I mean, number one, he's using the material and the same time the material's using him, if that makes sense. Okay. Because like this guy was notoriously a jailbird singer who just like, you know, claimed credit for all kinds of crazy shit that he probably never did once he was in jail. And he said, Oh, I killed this guy and I whacked that guy and da, 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 da. And I was, you know, I was wrapped up in all of it. And people are like, no, no, he really wasn't. He's full of shit. Mm-hmm. But because because Martin Scorsese wants to have this movie and he wants to tell this story, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go with his his version of what if he did it. But then in his movie, he doesn't even have the courage of his convictions. Like, right, when, once Alpa, once Robert De Niro's in in jail, and even when he's after jail, when he's living in the the, the you know, the, the home or whatever, he never tells this story. They're like, come on, come on, buddy. Everybody's dead. Nobody's out there to get you. Why don't you just tell us if you killed Jimmy Hoffa? He's like, I, I still ain't staying. I'm not going to say nothing, which is <laughs> bullshit. That's not what this character was like. So if you're going to, if you're going to go off of his own autobiography, which was famously somewhat bullshitted, you can, you know, you want to tell the story of the mafioso who doesn't say a word. But that's not this guy's story. This mm-hmm. guy said things. <laughs> so, you know, you want to have it both ways. You want to have it be this guy's version of events, which is already bullshit. But then you also want to have it be this guy's version of bullshit, where he's also better than he actually was because he never said when he mm-hmm. actually said something. <laughs> it, it's like, so, you know, I just feel like Martin Scorsese had the story in his head that he wanted to tell facts be damned. Mm-hmm. And Fair enough, uh, yeah. And like uh, at one point, like I mean, Al Pacino's hair was bizarre. Like yeah. the sides of his head were totally shaved or something, where there was like no hair beside his ears. And I was like, mm-hmm. "What in God's name is this?" Mm-hmm. And I tried to like see like actual photos of Jimmy Hoffa, and it doesn't really even look like what Jimmy Hoffa looked like. I think. Yeah, I had that same so, problem too. Yeah. So and I and I felt like like the whole thing about 
you, you never put a you never put a you, you put a you put a fish in your car and you never get the smell out you, you know it just this felt like a very like tarantino ripoff-esque conversation to have before you're gonna whack somebody right mm-hmm. yeah it's funny because a- ash that. yeah ash wasn't watching and she came in when i was watching that part and she was like, oh, is somebody about to get killed? And I'm like, yeah, how'd you guess? <laughs> <laughs> like, she had no idea about anything in the movie. She's like, oh, yeah, somebody's about to get killed, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, they're talking about the fish in the car and how exactly. you got to wash it and da-da-da-da-da. Oh, boy. I, I don't know. I, I can't wait for, like, I'm waiting for retroactive reviews because I think right now, everybody's too starstruck by the new hottest thing and stuff. And they're all going, Oh wow. It's his masterpiece. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. It's like, I want to see like five years out from now, do people gain a little bit of perspective on this thing and say, come on, now, this wasn't really up there with Godfather or Sopranos or, you know, even, you know, Goodfellas or any of that stuff. Don't forget Casino, Cha. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that one as recently, so I can't comment, but yeah. Yeah, so I, I had problems with it, but but anyways, it was the, uh, yeah, it was the Robbie Robertson connection that got me back to the Robbie Robertson music. Uh, uh, oh yeah, other music I'm listening to. Uh, there's, a, there's a band, sort of a band, I don't know what you call it called cheap talk hmm. okay now i almost feel like i shouldn't say too much about them to give away what their what their shtick is but basically it's a husband white wife duo who both had a strong appreciation for 1980s pop and mm-hmm. so they they made a song called push play <laughs> that was Okay, that is like a perfect recreation of an 80s style synthwave kind of like pop thing in the tradition of like a Madonna or something almost. But um, their song got used in a video game called Firewatch, which is set in the 1980s or late 80s, like early 90s or something. It's a it's a really interesting game in a way. Mm. But um, check that song out. Push play. It's It's like. And the thing is, the whole concept was that this was supposed to be like a, a lost version of an 80s song that was recently rediscovered, like after, hmm. after a fire in a building or something. And it's, 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 it's really cool. And another one was a guy named Jai Paul. Jay Paul, have you heard of this guy? Uh-uh. He's got a song no, called Straight Out of Mumbai. Now, this one's really hard to find. It mm. doesn't exist. It doesn't exist on... Uh, on you on youtube basically i had to go to i had to go to vimeo to find it but it was worth it it's a really weird wow. crazy song it's got like i can't even describe it it's kind of techno but it's kind of like uh kind of like bollywood or something it's um i don't know house mm-hmm. or something i'm not sure but it's got like a really weird chorus and it's got parts where the chorus cuts out hmm. and it's I, I i can't even describe it you gotta hear the song straight out of mumbai on vimeo or whatever um, but it's like, I don't know, I can't describe it, but the way that the, the song cuts out is also like artistically mm-hmm. compelling in a way. It's, it's really interesting. Huh. Yeah, and I'll also, check that I, out. I just said, yeah, he had another song called uh, something else that was in the GTA five soundtrack, I think, which I'd heard years ago, but I didn't realize that it was this guy or that this other song of his was so interesting too. Hmm. 
So, um, and then also I listened to Prince 1999 because we just two days ago had the 20 year anniversary of the 1999, the Y2K, you know, thing. So, yeah, had some good memories there. Yeah, I listened to a Prince album the other day. He was good. (laughs) (laughs) Understatement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he was pretty good. I, I don't know. Yeah, good songs. Yeah. Well, the uh, children are becoming restless, so I probably ought to get going here. But uh, yeah, let's let's figure out the December debate as soon as possible here. So. All right. Yeah, I'll try to start up on it pretty soon. All right. Well, hopefully my voice will be back and everything by then. But, yeah, we'll, we'll record again soon. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, I hope you feel better. So. All right. Yeah, thanks. Happy New Year, Bob. We'll talk yeah. to you and the family soon. Yeah, later on. Yeah, Have a good day. Bye.
Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.